Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome to this week's new episode of How's That Day? It's a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenhaft, here to introduce you to my co-host, Mr. Tom Bond. Each week, Tom and I, we get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through what's been going on in pop culture. I'll start this week. Nope, I'm not going to start this week with the same question. First, I'm going to summarize the week, because I wrote a summary. This week was full of more twists and turns for the world. In the week since the protests... Memorial Day holidays and reopening of multiple states, there have been an increase in COVID cases throughout the country, uh, somewhat putting a damper on the hopes that the heat would decrease the chances of the spread. Time will tell, but there's still no plan for national testing or really any kind of forward-thinking strategy coming from the White House. And as of today, the current death rate in America is 117,853. At this rate, we will be near 150,000 by the end of the year. Uh, Donald Trump has, of course, spent the week lashing out on Twitter about Joe Biden's widening lead in national polls and in some key battleground states. And the White House also announced it would be holding a presidential rally that will require attendees to sign waivers that sign away their legal rights to sue if they're infected by COVID at these rallies. So uh, Trump seems uh, pretty unhealthy. This week he gave a speech at West Point where he uh, stood weird, slurred his speech, and struggled to do basic tasks like drinking water. And uh, those uh, images and sounds have continued to spe- spread speculation that he might be hiding some health issues. We'll wait and see on that. I'm sure we'll uh, be called conspiracy theorists by some, but he's definitely as- acting funny. And uh, what else happened this week? Oh, oh yeah, protesters took to the streets of Atlanta and everywhere else in the country again on Sunday after after news broke that police once again wrongfully murdered a black man. Rayshard Brooks was shot twice in the back by police after a scuffle with officers after he was pulled over for a suspected DUI. The autopsy confirms that he died of three gunshot wounds to the back. The officers were in no danger. They had possession of his car and his ID, and instead of pursuing on foot or calling for backup, the officers chose instead to shoot him in the back three times. Protesters gathered at the Wendy's parking lot where Brooks died on Friday, and the restaurant was torched by protesters by Saturday. But some nice things happened. Uh, Today, thousands gathered on the Hollywood Walk of Fame uh, to march for the West Hollywood All Black Lives Matter Solidarity protest that decries racial injustice and supports LGBTQ LGBTQ rights. And uh, to mirror our conversation last week about Black Lives Matter being painted in D.C., we now have an All Black Lives Matter painted down Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, Spike Lee released a movie. Dave Chappelle dropped a surprise 30-minute set. Judd Apatow released a movie. Artemis Fowl is on Disney Plus and is apparently horrendous. And all that said, we're going to dive into a lot of that. Some of that we're not going to dive into, but there's so much. That said, now I can ask, Tom, how's that day? Artemis Fowl's no good, huh? That's a bummer. Dude, it's getting like Fs, like across the board Fs, saying it's one of the most unwatchable things you'll ever see, which of course has only made me want to watch it more. Imagine if that was the only thing I paid attention to in that whole... (laughs) opening segment <laughs> so artemis fowl sucks, Fuck, huh? artemis yeah, fowl isn't any good damn kenneth kenneth branagh's adaptation of that ya series i was really looking forward to that they got kenneth branagh to do that yeah he said he wanted it to be like michael corleone and the godfather of course of course he did <laughs> why would they get someone so self-serious to make a fun young adult series for disney that's crazy yeah, maybe I'll have a, a bored afternoon where I throw it on just to watch like at least the first 30 minutes to see what everyone's talking about. Yeah, I mean, Phil and I may watch it, but uh, no promises that we are going to discuss that in any real detail in a future episode. Sorry, everybody. Um, but to answer your question, Phil, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Um, another crazy week of 2020, as you mentioned. Man, that Wendy's was 
a complete ball of fire. Those images were crazy. Yeah, the, the spicy hot chicken sandwich was extra hot that day. That was, wow. I mean, well, you know, we've seen some fires break out as some of the protests turn more uh, aggressive, um, as some of the protests maybe um, inch towards rioting and looting in some places for sure. But I've that was that was nuts. Um, yeah, another really sad story. There's also the story in uh, right here in California. In Southern California, about oh, a the reported yeah, the hanging, yeah, a reported suicide that does not seem like a suicide. Um, do you have his name? I, I feel bad. I don't have it. On I didn't the, like. I guess I I didn't follow through on that one. I kept wondering if that was ever confirmed. I didn't see anything beyond speculation, so I didn't I didn't look more into that story. Yeah, so it was uh, Robert Fuller, I believe, is his name. A young black man in his early 20s was found hanging in a public park uh, in what town? Sorry about the... In Palmdale. So just outside of L.A., 60 miles north of L.A. Um, So an an updated news story. The California Attorney General is expected to conduct an independent investigation into the death of Robert Fuller, a 24-year-old black man found hanging from a tree in Palmdale about 60 miles north of Los Angeles. For anyone who is not aware, Palmdale does have kind of a shady history. It is known to have been uh, friendly to the KKK in its past. Um, And uh, according to what I have read um, from his family and those who know him, there were no indications that he was suicidal or depressed. Uh, It was obviously, uh, if it was a suicide, which is what it was initially ruled as, which I think... Um, sparked some of the outrage it, it would be very unique in the sense that i feel like most suicide by hanging uh does not happen in public places those are normally uh, private endeavors i guess i don't know the, the correct way to talk about that but it, it just seems very fishy um yeah uh, a black young black man hanging from a tree uh right across from the palmdale city hall building in the middle of the night that's yeah it's uh, yeah it's fucked up it's strange um everything is strange everything sucks uh like you said california again is one of the states that um have seen a rise in covid cases as uh places all around america are slowly reopening some places quickly reopening uh arizona it seems like they're on the verge of uh an emergency an emergency situation there so uh, everything is awful as the Lego movie says, everything is awful. Everything is bad when you're not part of a team. Um, how are you, Phil? How are you doing? Uh, I'm okay. I um, It hasn't been a f- fun week for me, necessarily. Not um, Nothing bad has necessarily happened. Today was pretty good. Today was my best day of the last several. Um, I switched meds, so I've been in a bit of a fog and uh yeah i don't know it's been a weird week the i'm in a bad point in quarantine where the everything's blending together and uh yeah i don't know it wasn't the best week i'll be honest it wasn't the best just with the bad news yeah no it's all right i mean not like anything terrible but just like today was one of the weeks where it was like uh yeah this is this has been shitty like uh stuff's been weighing on me mentally and um 
even physically, you know, like I, I've been eating like shit over through quarantine. I like the gyms being closed really ruined my diet. And I'm a, I'm a big runner and I loved going to the gym. It was a big part of my uh, weekly routine right. and I would go like three to five times a week and not having that is really like throwing my body off and yeah, I just like, it's been, this week wasn't great. And like I said, I switched medications, which, you know, is, is fine, but I, hopefully it's going well. Like I said, today has been better than the previous several days. And, um, and yesterday was better than the day before that and so forth. So, you know, it seems like it's, it's working, but yeah, I've just been in kind of a weird fog the last couple of days watching super serious content, feeling bad about America. And, uh, yeah, just kind of being down, but today was okay. Today we, uh, we went to the beach had a nice long walk on the beach. And, I saw that uh, you relaxed. took you took your puppy. Out yeah, he's playing he's, the he's water. Co- That's that looked like fun. Yeah, Ralph. He's coming. He's scared of the waves when they come like approaching, but once they're there, he's like happy. Um, Are you enjoying? Yeah, even though you moved right before the coronavirus outbreak hit California, are you enjoying the ability to uh, take a short drive over to the Santa Monica Beach and? Uh, waded the Pacific Ocean as opposed to being in landlocked Ohio for most of your life. Yeah, I we that's why we go almost like every week or two. Yeah, yeah. we're very uh, we're we're big beach fans. We're that was one of the big reasons we were happy to move out here. So I, I we take advantage of it regularly. And I think as the summer goes on, if anything, I'm surprised there's not days that I don't just like leave her and Ralph behind and just go by myself to just like listen to podcasts and hang out and read and shit. You have quite possibly been to the beach in LA more in your six months than I have in my seven years here. Possibly. <laughs> yeah, it'll be close. It's neck and neck at this point. It's weird like learning the layout of the city, seeing how like for me, it's like a 12 minute drive to get to the beach, but for you it's like 50 minutes. Yeah. And, but like it's it, it, how that makes all the difference, you know, like just where we're located in the city. Like we just happen to be on the different side of the city. So it's a little bit easier. And that makes that yeah, makes I, some difference, but not all of it. A lot of it is also desire. You having plenty of, and my complete lack of desire to no. go to the beach. I'm not a beach guy. That it's never. I like it when I'm there. I'm always like, ah, oh, this is fun. Especially if I go, you know, either further north or south of the city in Santa Monica slash Venice in particular, where it's you know often quite jam packed. I'm not a fan of that. If I can find like a a quiet spot, even if it's a smaller tract of sand, you know, I, I can enjoy that. But even still, I can't, I just can't, I can't be out in the sun for too long, man. Even if I'm under a, a parasol, an umbrella, I, I just can't do it. I like, I, I would like to go to the beach to read a book or maybe to like play volleyball or throw a football around, but I can only do that for an hour and, and then I'm, I'm good. Get me out of yeah, there. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a beach baby. Like my mom, we went. We had a beach house in North Carolina that we went to every summer my entire life for the first like seventeen years or something until we stopped. Until I stopped going and uh, for and only went sporadically after that. But yeah, every summer we would go for like two weeks and stay. And we were like on the actual beach, and so we would just like step outside, go down the steps, and you're on the beach. And we would spend all day on the beach and. It, I didn't realize until I got older and stopped going that it was like this like source of happiness for me. So uh, I hadn't gone in nearly 10 years until last summer. That's when Shell went with me and we all took like a family vacation back to North Carolina. And it was the first time I'd been there in a while. And I, I, had, I had particularly been struggling with like anxiety and depression for a, a significant stretch at that point. 
And like when we arrived there, Shell, I remember mentioning was like, she's like, this is the happiest you've been in months was like just immediately after we arrived there. So like the beach, I'm like Don Draper, man, like take me to the beach and it soothes my soul. So yeah. I, 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 I love it. Well, you know, also I'm not telling you something you don't know already, but you know, when you change beds like that, it will take a couple weeks to really kick in. But normally from what I've, from what I know, um, you know, whether or not it's long-term, who knows, only time will tell, and everyone reacts differently to every different type of medication, but normally the short-term effects, once those first few weeks have settled in and your body has uh, grown accustomed to that new pill you're on, um, you should definitely, at the very least, see some positive short-term effects. So you got that to look forward to in the, in the very near future. Yeah, and I'm, I'm getting a haircut tomorrow, my first haircut I hey. think, in months, and uh, I... Th- and I did acupuncture for the first time this week. That was new. Um, that uh, that was very interesting. I'm going back again on Tuesday. I'm going to make it a weekly thing now. And uh, yeah, it's very. I'm very excited to continue doing that. Well, that's good. You're 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 taking steps to improve your situation. So I'm proud of you, buddy. Good job. Yeah, I'm finding my my balance, as they, she said. The goal would be to like balance my bloodstreams. And that's also very. It's very sweet that Shell uh, was able to notice that so clearly on your trip to North Carolina. That's that's a woman who cares about her man. You love to hear it. Yeah. Or she's just been like, you've been a grouchy asshole for several <laughs> weeks. <and laughs> yeah, thank true. you for stopping. You're making my life fucking miserable. Thank you for giving me a break. Yeah, I'm relieved that this is going to work for at least a week. Yeah, well, you know, like we were saying, there's a lot of craziness going on in the world. But you also, you got to be able to take care of yourself first. Otherwise... Uh, how can you help others if you can't help yourself? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't have a good segue, but I felt like now was a good time just to like kind of give you the mic and let you kind of... I, I know we were going to talk about things that were important to us in our mind, and I was about to bring up the Dave Chappelle thing, but I know you wanted to talk about some of the news out of the horror community this week. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, kind of, like, set the stage for that, kind of uh, give a brief explanation of what's going on and just how it's... I know that's been on your mind a lot this week. And it has. horror fans like you, so so dive in, buddy. Yeah, so um, for those who don't know, and why would you, unless you're uh, following uh, film entertainment news publications and particularly uh texas-based film production companies but there was an article in the daily beast that uh at this point is a a a week old roughly maybe a little bit more um there's a company based out of dallas called cinestate which um is kind of the the parent company for a lot of independent film productions that happen in the in the texas uh, indie film scene and they're also the parent company of uh, several uh, smaller businesses in the horror community of which I'm a fan and uh, you know in my own small way a member um, like Fangoria Magazine which you know has a decades long history and has recently been rebooted over the past couple of years they now put out a quarterly print edition of which I'm a subscriber Cinestate is the parent company for that Um, There's also the Fangoria Podcast Network, which um, has uh, a plethora of great horror podcasts, um, Shockwaves, um, Nightmare University, Mick Garris, who's a a very uh, legendary presence in the horror community as a filmmaker, writer, and uh, 
an interviewer, just a, a personality there. He has his own podcast in the Fangoria Podcast Network, all under the umbrella of Cinestate. And what the Daily Beast reported was there is a, a guy who um, basically is one of the main heads of Cinestate, um, who they called the Harvey Weinstein of Dallas and of the independent film scene down there. Uh, his uh, name um, is Adam Donaghy. Donaghy, I don't know how you pronounce it. D-O-N-A-G-H-E-Y. And uh, he had been arrested in late April of sexually assaulting a 16-year-old uh, whom he met on a film production set in Dallas. And after this happened, I guess it was one of those uh, horribly kept secrets where everybody you know, knew about this guy and was warned about this guy, that he was a predator, that he stalked and groomed people. Uh, he had a particular proclivity for underage people, it seems. Um, and it goes way beyond you know, inappropriate comments and behavior, which is bad enough. But like I said, he, he was actually arrested for uh, sexual assault. And so this story broke and it shook up the independent film world a little bit. And uh, matriculated down into the horror community, especially all of those businesses under Cinestate. So, you know, immediately you saw uh, damage control. And, and from what I could gather, um, very honest uh, outrage. You know, um, Phil Noble uh, runs the Fangoria magazine. He released a statement uh, condemning it, saying he was not aware of it. And then, you know, very shortly after said Fangoria was... Uh, disassociating themselves from Cinestate. All of the, the podcasts that I mentioned, I think all of them, uh, to a T, all said that they were leaving uh, Cinestate, leaving the Fangoria Podcast Network, and we're going to work independently, and they were outraged. You know, huge horror personalities like Joe Bob Briggs, who writes for Fangoria, um, resigned as a, as a commenter, as a member of the staff there. Um, so you saw a lot of moves like this, and then suddenly... This guy, Rob Galuzzo, who is one of the main hosts of the Shockwaves podcast, which is probably the biggest horror podcast in the world. Um, maybe that's not saying much, but uh, Shockwaves is a podcast that was uh, hosted by four people, uh, one of whom is Rob Galuzzo. Another is Ryan Turek, who's a big producer at Blumhouse. He's the man responsible for bringing the Halloween franchise to Blumhouse. Um, another is Rebecca McKendry, who's a horror academic with a PhD. She also had the podcast Nightmare University. She teaches at USC. And this guy, Rob Galuzzo, uh, who has been in the business for decades at this point. He's probably around 40 years old. And he was, as of this past week, um, the head of acquisitions at Fangoria Films, as well as a host. So he suddenly puts out a statement saying he's resigning from Fangoria. Shortly after that, Shockwaves announces Rob Galuzzo is leaving the Shockwaves podcast as a co-host, and they're going on a brief hiatus. And you know, meanwhile, he's been posting all of these tweets. You know, I'm I'm so horrified at you know what we just found out about Adam Donaghy. He's been podcasting for years. Him and his other co-hosts have always been all about uh, progressive progressivism, inclusivity. Um, you know, really great people to follow and to uh you know they're they're just great insiders to listen to they're very ingrained in the industry and i guess what set off this second wave of allegations against rob uh 
was the fact that he was posting about his outrage and disgust at Adam Donaghy's behavior. So what happened was a bunch of women started coming out and saying, like, basically, you hypocritical prick, you're doing this exact same behavior. You're a stalking, abusive, passive-aggressive asshole. Comes out over and over and over again. He deletes his Twitter for a day. He reactivates it a day later, puts out a, a gross personal statement, like, think of Louis C.K.'s, but just as bad. Maybe Kevin Spacey level of tone deafness. Um, you know, then uh, his Shockwave's co-hosts are now forced to put out statements. Everyone on social media is demanding them to address it, even though they're probably dealing with their own shock and outrage. Sadly, the only one uh, who addresses it immediately in the moment just speaks off of her emotions directly is the only female co-host, Rebecca, who just immediately is crushed. She's just... She's on Twitter retweeting the Shockwave's announcement that Rob is no longer a host, saying, I'm completely devastated. I've lost all my trust. This is horrible. I had no idea. Um, defending all the women who are coming forward. The men are silent. Ryan and the other co-host, Elric. Um, as of talking about it now, I still think uh, Ryan Turk, the producer at Blumhouse, I don't know if he said anything publicly. I know the other male co-host, Elric, finally mentioned something a few days ago or a few days after the allegations saying, you know, sorry, I didn't say anything publicly sooner. I'm, I'm legitimately stunned. I had no idea. And, like my heart's broken. You know, I just basically, I found out one of my best friends is a, is a monster. Um, so it's just this weird reckoning that seems to be happening right now in independent film and in the horror community in general. I was telling Phil before we started recording, um, I'm a big fish fan for people who don't know is the band fish and horror, the horror community to me is similar. They're, they're these very weird, pop culture phenomenons that are super popular but maybe not super mainstream like they're they're kind of weird things to love uh people kind of give you sideways glances when you tell them you're a big fan of either like fish or horror i happen to be a big fan of both so there's a lot of like rallying around that of being a fan of this weird thing and because of that there's a lot of inclusivity there there's a lot of like partnering together and supporting each other and there's a lot of like, oh, yeah, you're this weirdo who likes this thing. You can be a weirdo with me, too. And uh, there's an extra feeling of inclusivity there. Of like, yeah, the freaks can kind of band together and enjoy this thing. And what seems to be happening right now is uh, a minor, I don't know, maybe a major reckoning of what it always comes down to, it seems. Uh, people in power, particularly men in power, who are taking advantage of that and are using their positions to uh, harass and stalk and groom uh, these supposed outsiders with good intentions who are just looking for a community and a place to uh, feel at home, you know? And that's like, it, it weirdly hit me, uh, it really bummed me out because I've been a fan of the Shockwaves podcast for years. It was killer POV before then. I've, I've listened to these guys for a decade almost at this point and as phil knows as anyone who's a big podcast fan or if you're a fan of a radio host for a very very long time you know this is non-fiction stuff and every week you're like you're diving in on their lives for two hours and hearing them talk about what they're listening to their stories what they did that weekend what their hobbies are you really get to know these people and rob always just seemed like a really good guy and it turns out he's a he's a fucking monster and it's just like a really weird thing. And uh, since that story, those stories have come out against him, 
it seems like there are just more and more of these guys that uh, all these women coming forward are saying, you know, he's not the only one we know about. You know, people whisper, be careful of Rob G, but there are plenty of others like that in this community. And it makes me wonder, these hosts are all saying, his his co-hosts are saying, I had no idea that I'm completely blindsided. As someone who listened to him every week for years, I was completely blindsided. And it just makes you wonder, like, <laughs> can you ever know a person, you know? like, Yeah. Well, I mean, I, there's always, for every serial killer, there's always a neighbor saying, you know, he was a perfectly nice fellow. Um, but, yeah, that kind of, I remember even Matt Lauer, like, when they gave the, the news to Savannah Guthrie and them on the Today Show, they had given them the news, like, five or ten minutes before. Yeah. They, they had to announce it. And if you go back and watch them, say, like those are people who had worked next to Matt Lauer for they like were a decade rattled. or whatever. Yeah. And they, they were just like reading the prompter and you could tell they were just shaken. They were yeah. like, oh, we had no idea. Like, I, I can't believe we've this man we've known and loved and respected for years has been doing this. And it were, and it's on every level, like whether it's the Matt Lauer's or this kind of like just Texas based producing company that has had some real success and even like I was just thinking of uh, this actress who is the star of my movie. She's done, she did a ton of movies that, yeah, like the whole, very low budget horror movies that I think like have, they, they probably sell the title before they sell the movie, you know, right. where it's like, yeah. and they, these, these production companies that just have deals that um, like the, the, the distribution deal is you're going to go to this region of Walmart's, and like have that kind of distribution of your your low budget horror movie and it's going to be like cabin stabbing five or something like that but she did a ton of those before um joining my movie and she joined she uh started a facebook group that was basically and she loves horror movies and had done a ton of them and really loved working in that environment and she formed a facebook group that i i remember i talked to her and i said um, she's like, I, I want it to be inclusive, but I, you know, it's, I want it to be for women who have been abused and been sexually harassed on the, by these men on these sets, even at the small level that I've been working on. And, um, and I told her, I was like, don't let men in the group. You're just going to get some fucking guy who's going to try and explain something to you that you don't want to know. Like make it a women only group, like keep it private amongst yourselves. Like be safe, like share your stories. Don't worry about like inclusivity when it comes to that shit. Um, and uh, yeah, I, at every level, like from whether it's just local horror filmmakers, people in power uh, and by people, I mean, white men, um, often white men. And yeah, they just, it, it's a horrible thing that I, I, I don't know if it's tied to power or masculinity or society or what, I think it, it, whatever it is. I don't know. Yeah. I think in this, in this particular instance, Rob, with this guy, from what I was reading, and I think this is the case with a lot of people, um, uh, there's a great uh, a lady in the horror community. Her name is Clark Wolf. Um, she is a, uh, a horror writer. Um, she's written, you know, great essays. She's, I think she has her own podcast, but she's also been a podcast guest. She's been a guest on his show. And she ended up coming up and saying something and uh her story was basically she didn't get into specifics but basically he had been a friend of mine for a while um he started to behave very inappropriately uh and i had to shut it down and i chose to 
remain friendly with him because it was in the interest of my career to do so. Like I had to sacrifice that. You know, he ended up being uh, a heavy player at Fangoria. They were looking at one of my scripts. I thought it was in the best interest of my career to just kind of let that be water under the bridge and try to move forward. And so I guess what happened was um, Rob was trying to do a reckoning and take stock of his behavior. He ended up contacting Clark and uh, after these accusations came out and said, you know, I'm thinking about putting out this statement. Um, I realize you're one of the persons, uh, one of the women that I may have hurt. And this is what I was thinking of saying. She basically said, you know, this is in, in so many words saying I would recommend you don't put this statement out. I would recommend you kind of like just yeah, I read all <laughs> speaking that. Yeah. on her behalf. But like basically yeah, I read, just I read, like I remember reading those yeah, messages. Um, basically, um, I suggest you just shut the fuck up and stay away and really try to reflect and like really try to understand what you've done and what your behavior is like and how can you better it. And he just completely ignored her and later that day put out a statement. And that's what caused her to go public with her story. Basically, she was saying... You know, he wanted to release this statement immediately saying, you know, I'm here to listen to those I've hurt. But he contacted her and asked to listen. She gave exactly what he asked for. And then he just ignores it anyway. And it's like, I don't think you... And her reasoning for talking about it was like, that showed me you you don't care about actually trying to understand your behavior. You basically just want to be forgiven and like be allowed back into the position you're in because you loved it so much. So I think in this instance, and I think what happens a lot is, like I was saying earlier, you know, a lot of the horror community is for like outcasts and losers. I think Rob was a guy who was probably like a loser and an outcast as a kid. He got welcomed into this community. He got put into this position of power and he just turned into a, he he ended up being a horny douchebag who couldn't keep it in well, his pants. Like the, and there's even fucking so freaks. Like yeah, I mean, speaking of Texas, there was Harry Knowles. You yeah, know, who exactly. Just, like, exactly. Ha- he, some you know uh, you know I you know not to get too personal, but just like an ugly man, like a very fucking uh, the cliche comic book Simpsons man dork, like overweight in a wheelchair, and he but he yielded this power over the film community, especially in Texas. And, you know, he ain't it cool news is still running. I I can't imagine people still go there regularly. I'm sure they do, but I don't know why, but yeah, like people like that who are just these probably grew up as outcasts and feeling like freaks. And yeah, you give them a little bit of power and it's, it's hard for them to control it. And I don't know how you teach, you know, outside, you know, outside of morals or something like in your parents or the world, I don't know how you teach not to do that, but it's just being know. a decent person. And it's also, honestly, I know this is simplifying the issue dramatically. How, the thing that blows my mind that I never, I'll never understand, and why I have very little sympathy for people like this. All right. I'm a fat guy. I'm a loser. I get it. Fucking, that's what self, like, People always talk about self-love and self-care. What do you think masturbation is, guys? Fucking jerk off. Just jerk off. The reason why so many... Like, look at Louis C.K. He used to do these bits that we find out are completely true. And completely about these demons he's dealing with. Like, he used to do a bit about seeing a hot girl in an elevator and wanting to, like, wrap her hair around his dick and jerk off. And then you find out, like, oh... That was a bit because, like, he really wanted to do that, was trying to get as close to doing that as possible. And that ended up being his downfall. Like, 
why do you have to take the shit out on on actual human beings? Well, yeah, like self care. Take thing. care of yourself. Self love, guys. That means eating well. That means exercising. That also means masturbation. You can do all these things completely to yourself and just be a decent human being. Like it's not fucking hard. It drives me crazy. Well, and the reason you know it's a it's a power thing is because like Louis C.K. is rich. He can afford to have a prostitute come up to his hotel room and watch him jack off. Like if he wants to, like if that was a, a story that leaked that Louis C.K. like hired sex workers to watch him masturbate like no one would care they'd be like that's great like who, that, it's his right to do that that's his kink whatever like that's not the problem the problem is like taking advantage of women who are in a position either not to say no or who feel like if they do say no then they're going to be punished for it and that on top of when men like this and maybe you know you I, I think you know there's a wide range of examples that have come out in the me too era of like different ranges of assault but I think when you have something like Louis C.K. where you had a kind of different re- range of reactions to it where some were really hurt by it and some were like, yeah, I said yes, you know, but I was a little uncomfortable with it. But you had that. And I, I think if you had Louis C.K., like you said, take a year off and then come out a year later and say like, hey, I took a year and I went to therapy and I talked to all the women in my life and I am very sorry and I'm going to work hard to make sure that I'm through like rules in my production company, not allowed in rooms alone anymore with uh, people that are associated with projects. And like, where I want to take the steps that need to be taken uh, the, to like better myself. I think there would be a w- lot of people who would be like, yeah, okay, like let's, let's go from there. But I instead, got it. These got, yeah, sorry. Go even, ahead. But uh, yeah, I was just going to say like, but these guys, instead they issued these non apologies and they grow defensive and any kind of sympathy that even, might have gone out the door or some kind any or something i don't know it just goes right away right out the door as soon as they have that kind of non-apology because you're like you're not even you're clearly not aware of what the problem is which speaks to probably a deeper problem exactly and like with louis ck to be specific i got into an argument with a friend of mine who when it when the news started to break that louis was starting to pop up and do surprise uh you know short sets at clubs in new york where he would always go his hometown clubs you know, and so many people were outraged and other people were like, you know, let him come back. He deserves to have a career. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was one of those guys. It was like, he, he's allowed to come back. It's like, yes, of course, you know, he's not banned. He's not in jail right now. The problem is, as a fan of Louis, I was hoping he would do something like what you just said. Instead, he came back. And w- what did he talk about when he talked about that? How much money he lost. That was his focus. Like, I, I just yeah, had the yeah. worst year of my life. I lost a ton of money. Like, well, think about why. Why do you Yeah, think now you I'm a pariah. Feel bad for me. Yeah, it's not. And that that's the problem so much about this. But so I, I've had so many thoughts swirling in my head about this story because it, it happened to hit uh, a podcast in particular, these personalities that I that I've followed for so many years. And another big part of it was, uh, which I touched on briefly, but I've been thinking about a lot. So one of the hosts, Rebecca, immediately comments on it, talks about how hurt and devastated she is. She gets a ton of support. Um, People feel really bad for her, obviously. Um, And then there's all this other talk from so many people like, why haven't the other two guys said anything? And a couple days go by and like, dude, where are they? Why aren't they saying anything? And um, that, that was kind of fucked up to me too. Um, 
one someone eventually asked her directly like it's really bumming me out that you're the only one saying something about this like these other guys need to need to step up and say something right now and part of me was thinking like i was curious like, the, if, I, like give, yes did yeah, they give them a couple days not, to like, process their friends yes and don't also turn the trauma of what this one guy did the this guy prayed and don't turn the focus away from him and on his victims and to friends of his who for all we knew know knew absolutely nothing about this and are reeling right now like completely reeling you know like maybe just give them a minute and i there's this there's this culture now especially we see it so much with social media i just talked about like the benefit of social media and in a time of the black lives matter protests in our last episode but then you also see stuff like this like this outrage culture where you know people talk about cancel culture all the time and i think just saying cancel culture is obviously a simplification to a very uh serious and complex issue issues but one of them that i see is stuff like this where like someone who's kind of just a, a bystander to a scandal like this in this case being the three other co-hosts of his podcast that was super popular are now being like demanded by the public to face the music and it's like they're they're also traumatized and you don't i i feel i want to say to these people like are you are you genuinely so disgusted and outraged that you need to hear from them or are you just trying to like channel some anger that you have for some reason somewhere else in a way that makes you feel good because if they're, or they're also, waiting like, to tear apart that whatever they they just want to interrogate what this person says to see if their like reaction to it fits this person's fit, standard exactly. what the reaction exactly so like eventually one of the guys elric comes out and says sorry i haven't said anything for a few days this shocked me i'm, I'm reeling from it and you know most of the comments are supportive and stuff and then someone says like that's not enough you have to say you would you will never allow this to happen again and it's like dude <laughs> he can't control that i mean he can do what he can obviously he can say something if he sees something he's saying he had no idea like i was just telling you can you ever really know a person i can totally buy that a friend of mine could turn out to be a sexual predator and i would never know about it and that's how people get away with this shit for so long is that they don't show you the side of themselves this is so often a private thing that they keep private because they know it's wrong. And there's also this weird thing of like people want uh, tra- other people's trauma to be performative to them that you see a lot on social media. And it's like uh, these other co-hosts, not to make the story about them, but they're probably traumatized too, assuming they didn't know about this and this is all news to them and they're hurt and they feel bad for these victims and also betrayed by their friend and you know feel i'm sure they feel bad for their friend in some way because how can you not it's like a person you've known for so long and you probably love and then you find out they're this bad guy and how do you reckon with those feelings there's just so much complication to all this and um i don't know uh it's been on my mind a lot so i wanted to bring it up yeah, I mean, you uh, you look at that other video that came out this week of the celebrities looking into the camera very pensively saying, I oh take responsibility. God. You know, you have the other end of the spectrum of, like, you, these celebrities who are so eager to let you know how, like, progressive they want to be. To perform for you. To perform this kind of, like, um, this performative shame or regret or whatever it is of, like, I'm going to do better 
whatever. I've had 30 years of being the biggest star in the world, but I'm going to work with more black women uh, in the year somehow, somehow, some way. I don't know how, but it'll happen, I, I think. You know, or whatever it is that they're saying in these videos. And, like, it... Yeah. And, yeah, and it's so ridiculous. And it's like, you know what? Like, if this matters to you, then... You, you know who, like, walks the walk is fucking Brad Pitt. You don't... You never see Brad Pitt, like, taunting or, like, touting his production company about how amazing they are and how progressive they are. But Brad Pitt helped release 12 Years a Slave, Moonlight... Um, they've gotten behind a number of black films and black filmmakers, and he has like supported them from the from the sidelines, and he has not touted that. And I, I feel like I would rather see that. I would rather hear a story about Reese Witherspoon doing something in her company that makes sure something will never happen again. That matters more to me than some fucking video about. She wasn't even in the video, but some celebrities like her. Yeah, actually, looking, looking, matter looking more into than a camera. Words. Actions matter more than words, and these empty gestures online, whether it's a like reaction to somebody else's um, sin or whatever else you want to call it, I don't know, but like a re- whether you want some some celebrity to have a reaction, but then of course, if celebrities have too much of a reaction, you're like, hey, you're just a celebrity, shut up, you know, like it's a weird line, and well, I, I it's think- also you know what we're seeing, particularly in the last week, is so much of from from black people telling white people like okay if you want to be an ally these are the steps you should follow and one of the biggest steps is don't make this shit about you like use your use your position of power as a white person especially if you're a famous white person to amplify black people and their voices so for all these white actors to release this video is just so tone deaf it's crazy yeah it's and you know, we'll wait and see, but like it's the same thing when you see these awards and actors who wear a fucking ribbon or something like a pin on their suit, they all like are in unison about like we're against all this. And I'm like, yeah, show it to me in your contracts, show it to me in your unions, show it to me in the work, then I'll care. And um, also, until si- people are, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say until people are actually doing that and having zero tolerance, you know, policies. Like it's like you know we were talking about it before, and you're like, yeah, I just don't. Louis C.K. fucked up, and there's enough art in the world that I don't have to revisit his work again. There's nothing compelling me to do so to support that man right now. And I feel like if everyone just would take that stance and be like, yeah, look, like there's enough art in the world. Like We can support good people, and just keep supporting good people. Don't uh, There's so many assholes, and like we have to kind of find a way to kick these assholes out of power. But power seems to attract assholes, yeah. so it's, it's an endless cycle. Also, though, I do want to say I don't want to compare the the people who are in that actor's video to assholes who are actually doing horrible shit. I mean, that was like that no, just seemed no, like a I dumb met... mistake, like the Imagine video. Although I will yeah. say, side note, side note, uh, one of the actors in that video, uh, I don't know her person or him or her uh, personally, but um, I know from people who do know this actor. Uh, male or female that uh, they are a complete fucking monster so i had to laugh when i saw that face show up in that video yeah there's some there's a couple people that um it's just well known they're just well-known monsters (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) we don't yeah we don't need to dive into it all right now but yeah there's there's plenty of people who are well-known monsters 
Um, all right. On that note, we, let's move on. The other thing that came out this really this week that we really wanted to kind of touch on quickly before we dived into our main film was that Dave Chappelle released a surprising eight uh, a, a surprising what would you call? I don't even want to call it a stand up performance. A video. A yeah. I um, mean, it seemed like just a general uh, like a, a warm up set. You know, like he's. Uh, working on a special yeah maybe but so, instead yeah, of it, actually maybe working on his prepared material he ended up talking about um what's happening right now in the world with uh the protests and george floyd and police brutality and systemic racism and all that yeah yeah so it was a a surprise video that Chappelle recorded last week um in beaver creek ohio which is uh, i should say where i grew up um i know this is all i i, I feel like I've said Dayton, Ohio, there's Xenia, there's Beaver Creek, there's Fairborn. There's all these kind of subsects, but it's all Dayton. And I grew up in all of them. But I, I grew up in Beaver Creek. Tom, you yourself have been to Beaver Creek. That's where this was filmed. I sure um, it, was, it was recorded in Beaver Creek just last week. And it's kind of it's 30 raw, untested bits of material from Dave. It's an outdoor venue with limited seating. And you can see people in lawn chairs spaced out with their masks on. And as they walk into the show, it says that COVID testing is available on signs and you can see that people's temperatures are being taken. And the set from Chappelle is not as much a standup, but like you said, as it is him kind of working through his own anger and through um, all these emotions, he's trying to mock those who don't understand that anger. He's taking shots at commentators reactions in the media to the George Floyd death and to the protests, and he still finds rooms for some laughs. And um, he just knows this is a moment where he can't just talk about whatever jokes that are on his mind. He has to talk about what he's been seeing and feeling, and this is clearly just Dave Chappelle raw. And it's an emotional, very raw sit, and it's available for free on YouTube right now. Go check it out. But Tom, you, you told me before we started recording, but you had, a, like I said, a very emotional reaction. I had an emotional reaction uh let's just briefly kind of talk about it yeah um i i happened to be up uh when it was a surprise release it's on netflix's netflix is a joke they're like stand up uh subsect or whatever on their youtube channel it suddenly just appeared and um i saw a couple of people comment on twitter i think like wow i've never seen dave like this so i went to the the link and checked it out and, you know, there's a little message from him in the description of the video. And he's like, you know, normally I wouldn't release something like this. Like, this was clearly not a planned special or anything he even wanted to talk about. And so I started watching it that night. And two minutes in, I got the sense of, you know, where this was going to go. And he just releases this heavy sigh. I was telling Phil before, like, he he's about, he's settling in. And before he really gets going, he just goes like, <sighs> and I, I, at that moment, I'm like, Ooh, I can't watch this right now. I'm uh, feeling a little emotionally raw. <laughs> so I had to save it for a few days. I finally got to it. Um, after hearing so many people talk about how, uh, raw and unfunny it is intentionally. So, uh, and how eloquent and how great of a storyteller Dave is. We've heard all that before. So yeah, this made me cry. And, uh, uh, in a way I wasn't expecting. I wasn't like, uh, I was telling Phil off mic earlier, I wasn't, you know, sobbing, like openly weeping, but I was just watching it and uh, I felt like I was just watching it kind of dead-eyed with tears rolling down my face. 
um, because it's it's weird seeing this guy who's been a voice um, of reason and of laugh and comfort for so many years, uh, a guy who is like a legitimately great storyteller and uh, has a really great unique perspective and you know a lot of times makes sense to insanity, uh, just to see him uh, kind of lose it and cut loose and get really really mad really really fucking mad um and desperately mad like a guy at the end of his rope and that um that combined with the the obvious subject matter the reason why so many people have been taken to the streets you know something that i've done as well the reason why i've you know basically done nothing else um but you know try to read up and spend as much time and energy as I can on this because it it this feels like a real uh turning point and something that we like can no longer walk back or be outraged for a little while and then move on from anymore it seems it seems like something changed permanently uh, with the death of George Floyd in that video that was released the special is called 846 and that's because that's the length of time that was recorded on tape of that police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck. And that's, you know, the beginning of that, of that Chappelle um, special, whatever you want to call it, set is, uh, that's what really sets him off, is, you know, actually forcing himself to sit down and watch that. Um, something he says, you know, at first I, I couldn't do it because I didn't, I knew once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it, but I knew I eventually had to. Um, because once you watch that, you will you'll be changed basically right like that's pretty much what he says and that's kind of how i felt too from watching that it's like how could you see that and know that these this community has felt this forever in this country did you watch all eight minutes yes. just cu- out of curiosity yeah. i have not i have not i've watched i would i'd say i'd watch three minutes i've watched a lot of it it's but i didn't really not watch all eight minutes it's really hard to watch but i i didn't for a while just like Dave, I, I kind of was like, I don't need to see that. That's going to be fucking brutal. But I, I I don't know, man. Like like I was just saying earlier in the last segment, talking about that celebrity video, I've been really consciously trying to like, uh, to listen to, listen to black people and just not only trust what they're telling me, which I, I don't think I ever had an issue doing earlier, but, um, trust what they're trying to teach me now uh more so than in the past because i think something that i've really been focusing on as a white guy in the last couple weeks is that white people were failed to in this country the way we're we're raised and the way we're taught um like when we talk about systemic racism in this country it's not like every white person's in on the secret you know um no they don't like they're most of them, especially an older generation, are quite blind and willfully blind to it. When you kind of start talking to them about it, they'll kind of be like, no, 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 no. Exactly. Or they'll say, like, you know, I, I've had struggles in my life, too. And it's like, of course you have. You know, life is tough for a lot of people. But the the difference is it's not a systemic issue. <laughs> That's the yeah, problem. And- I've talked to, like, my mom about it. And she's kind of of that, like, I remember you talked. I've said things like, you know, like, they, you know, you... 
you have this white privilege. And I think when she hears the word privilege, she's like, she's like, oh, I had to work for everything I had. I'm like, no one said you didn't work hard, mom. You know, and it's one of those walls that kind of go up. It was weird. Shell was showing me a, 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 a an episode of the uh, Donahue show where they had um, uh, Farrakhan on. They had someone on. I, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name, but I believe it was uh, Farrakhan. And he was lecturing white people about like this is the problem and you need to listen and white people were in the audience and it was a lively debate it was it was a pretty interesting video but it was from the 90s and it was the same things that i think you still hear today and white people still have these same issues of not wanting to accept that there is some kind of systematic um favor towards them yeah i mean we get really defensive because you know i think most people in general are, are generally pretty good people, pretty decent people. Uh, you and I are. We're we're both two white straight men, um, and it's it can be really hard to hear. Like you're part of a, of a system that perpetuates the the downfall, and the oppression of us as a group. And I want to I want to believe that. Like no, I don't take part in that. Of course, I'm a good guy. I'm not racist. I you know like the whole cliche. Like I have a black friend. Like shit like that. But. The reality is, we need to uh, white white people need to unlearn a lot of shit they've learned. Like we were saying just last week, I think the the very last episode we recorded, how no one's taught about the Tulsa race riots and Black Wall Street, right? Like that's something we need to know about. That's stuff we need to know about. And so when Dave mentions watching that video and being changed, uh, I, I eventually watched the whole thing because. Um, frankly enough enough black people on social media like black people that i follow uh and activists and people who are actually like doing the work to try to improve this problem that we have in this country we're saying like you have to watch it you just have to watch it and you'll be changed because this is what we go through you people white people talk about they want to try to understand we'll watch the video and you'll see what we deal with and because that all they say is like that could have been me that you know it happened to George Floyd it could have been any of them and that's kind of the point of this whole thing and I could never know that experience I could never know that inherent fear of is a cop gonna kill me today that's 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 ludicrous to me um and that's so long story short that's I that is eventually why I watch it and yeah it's it's life-altering man it's fucking brutal it's the most brutal shit ever um Anyway, I know we're talking about Ch- Chappelle. I thought it was a brilliant special. I think it's important for everyone to watch. Um, he makes a lot of great points. It was nice to have Chappelle back in a way uh, because he is, I feel like, just as a fan of his, uh, personally, I feel like he's made some missteps in the last few years. Um, I feel like he's not as tight as he used to be in his style. Like I, th- I feel like every word used to matter. And now his uh, style is much more like smoking a cigarette, like throwing out some some ideas at you, um, more than it was like a, a fucking sharp jab that it used to be. Yeah, not only that though, I feel like it's. Um, I do agree with that, but I also feel like he's he said some things and had some opinions that you know I don't have to agree with everything a person says, but um, over the last couple of years, I feel like he's he's gone down a few roads where I'm. I kind of go like, wow, really? You think that, Dave? That's kind of surprising. Or like, I wonder, you know, does he truly believe what he's saying? Or is he just trying to like see what kind of reaction he can gauge? Like, 
his SNL appearance, which he actually apologizes for in this special. I mean, just about one thing in particular, but talks about like, you know, like my SNL thing, there's one thing that I did get wrong. And at first I thought that was going to be an admission of like, maybe that wasn't the greatest set. But, you know, he's also said, you know, he has certain beliefs about like, transgender people and stuff maybe not police but things that he said in his special so like certain stuff like that that kind of like i i don't know I, I i did love hearing from him as a guy who i thought was so um uh forward thinking in advance i don't know what i'm trying to say but basically it was great to hear dave uh it was just great to hear him unfiltered and hear that mind work uh, in a way that only he can do, you know, like a lot of the specialists focus on like, you know, people are wondering why I haven't said anything yet. And it's like, you guys are doing the work marching in the streets, which is true. And I think, you know, I appreciate how much credit he's given to the people protesting and really fighting for change and saying like, you don't need to hear another fucking celebrity talk. There's a lot of truth to that, but Dave is unique. And I think his opinion carries a lot of weight and has a lot of value. And I think he, he brought it. All right, that is available for free. It is on YouTube. It is called Dave Chappelle 846. Which, Wait, what did uh, you think? You're just going to let me talk and not say anything? Oh, I mean, I guess I, I agree with everything you say. I, I don't have anything, especially uh, for me, it was, like you said, it was it was a peek into, like you could see him checking his notebook. You can see him uh seeing where he's supposed to be at but he's clearly kind of going off his heart and i i was yeah it was fascinating especially his the way he wraps around the number um he talks about how 846 is the time that he was born and um that number meaning a lot to him for a different reason and the date that he was born coinciding with other things and or it was somebody else's birthday I, uh I'm well no it was um the night that the uh, nine police officers in Texas were killed was the same night of Kobe's last game. They had the two jerseys of him, 8 and 24, which is oh, right, his right, birthday, right. August 24th. Um, but yeah, he opens that story talking about um, the only other time he saw someone cry for their mom was when his dad was dying and cried out for his grandmother, which lasted 30 seconds. And he could tell that his dad knew he was dying. And then for George Floyd to have to go through that for eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's kind of what kicks off. Yeah, that's special. what starts it. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I've mentioned it before. I mentioned at the top of this show, like Dave Chappelle is from my hometown. And I grew up kind of with that hometown pride of like, he's a genius. And I think on top of that, the fact that he has continued to shoot things like Block Party. It takes place in a town right outside where I grew up. This was shot probably 10 minutes i know where exactly where he shot it at it's like 10 minutes from my mom's house and there's that kind of local and i also as i think i've also mentioned i used to work at a gym or work out at a gym every week where he also worked out at so i i've always had this lifelong both love of dave Chappelle through his art and also kind of this personal connection and even seeing that personal connection through this was kind of just as someone who just moved away from home being like oh yeah they're they're back at that place that i know um, that had that weird level of nostalgia kick in at the, be at the beginning. But then, um, yeah, like I said, the kind of raw anger took over and I just kind of appreciated it for what it was. And it's not an easy watch, but it's an essential watch. And I kind of woke up that day ready to watch a lot of heavy shit. So it was, a it was a, a good way to start that kind of day. 
Yeah. But yeah, like I agree with, I know what you're saying about the last couple of years. He hasn't been as tight as I think he used to be. I think there's still incredibly funny moments or brilliant For comments. Sure. Or, He's great. And he just has a voice where he has that delivery that he can just say things that are funny. Like he just has a naturally hilarious delivery of sentences and cadence and he knows how to deliver a joke. The man, he's an incredible, he's one of the best, if not the best to ever do the, the stand up thing. And so to watch this and watch him be so raw and so unscripted and not have a routine kind of built in and just kind of go from the heart. Like you said, it's just, it's very emotional. Can't, it's hard to watch at times and, but it's essential and essential, especially if you're trying to be a white person, understanding the anger. I think that's what I sometimes am baffled by. People are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I know slavery was a bad thing, but that was a long time ago. And it's like, no, 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 no. This happens every day. It happens today. It happens everywhere. And that's why they're still so angry. Try and understand where that's coming from. Please just shut up and listen to what he's saying and try to understand this emotion as opposed to telling him he's wrong or misguided for feeling that emotion because it hurts your white feelings or something. I don't know. Yeah. No, yeah. Exactly. Like, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing. I, I, it's great. I love Dave. It was, if not, it's not, I don't think I would, you know, compare it to his standup specials. I don't know that it's necessarily that, but it's an amazing, no, it's, like, a, se- it's a separate thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's just a, a, as a fan of his, if you're a fan of his and are interested in what's going on, it's a very emotional 30 minutes that I think is worth it. Yeah, it's it's more like a Spalding Gray uh, performance yeah. than a stand-up special. Uh, he is he's he's if not the greatest stand-up currently working, he's definitely the greatest storytelling stand-up currently working. And what you were just saying about that, uh, just one last thing, uh, how he's able to because this is a big thing. I feel like is um, you hear so much right now with the protests and a lot of people, especially white people, even white people who support the protests and believe that systemic racism and police brutality are a real issue. Um, a lot of them seem to fall back on the riots and the looting that are taking place in some spots as a way to um, nullify everything else that's happening. And, you know, he... Yeah, like as, as if a, a burning... Great- well, he Wendy's used, matters exactly. more than that guy's life, yeah. Right, but like, you know, Chappelle uh, discusses it in a really great way. He brings up that guy, Chris Dorner, who I'm sure people remember, but if you don't, he summarizes it briefly. A former, uh, a former vet, a former police officer who tried to do the right thing by the book and call out police brutality and got fired for it, and then went nuts and wrote a manifesto and started killing cops, and when they eventually found him, you know, Chappelle goes on to say, you know, they eventually found him in Big Bear. He was part of the LAPD. They find him in Big Bear, California, which is less than two hours away from Los Angeles. He's hiding out in a cabin. And 400 police officers descend on him and corner him before they kill him. And Chappelle basically says, like, why do you think 400 cops showed up? That's pretty excessive, right? It's because he was killing their own. So if you can see that and you can understand that reaction from the police, that excessive reaction of 400 cops showing up to capture and kill one guy why can't you understand all the black people who see the eric garner video or the george floyd video and take to the streets and get as mad as dave Chappelle is getting on that stage how can you not understand that that it's the same thing you know and that that was a great corollary to me yeah you saying that reminds me of last year when i was working for the news in dayton 
um, there was an officer involved shooting and the officer was killed in the line of duty. And this officer was a like 30 plus year veteran had, uh, worked in that department for years, had done all kinds of different jobs at different levels. And it was apparently very highly respected and well loved and near retirement. And during a raid on a house, uh, someone shot and killed him. And that person I think was killed in the raid. And, uh, it was, the biggest news story for weeks around that area and cops from the entire state. I, I covered the funeral and it was held in uh, an arena with like thousand plus seating and over a thousand officers showed up and um, there were speeches from the mayor and the governor and it was a, a giant mega event and I felt terrible in a way being at it because, and I'm the son of a police officer. I should note that. Um, I have a weird relationship with the police because my father was a police officer and I have uncles who are police officers, but I've never actually liked police officers very much. And, um, uh, yeah, it was very weird being there. I had to cover the funeral and it was very strange because I had this sense of like, I'm sure this was a, a amazing human being. I'm not saying he does not deserve this kind of honor, but the entire state of Ohio, has, you know, come down to honor this one officer who died. And I just, not that this officer was a bad person, but I just thought about the hundreds and thousands of people that have been wrongfully killed that will never receive this kind of honor and receive this kind of uh, due attention to the life that they lived. And it's just a shame. And I, I, like you said, these officers, the way they feel, and you see it, uh, you know, if you attack a police officer, you should get prepared for seven police officers to beat the shit out of you. And... If they can't understand why, if you beat the shit out of one black man, be prepared for seven black men to get angry at you. Like, if they can't understand that, then I don't know what to say to them at this point. Exactly. On that note, let's talk about the new Spike Lee movie. Yeah. All right. Let's let's get right. light. <laughs> let's let's dive into Spike Lee's latest film. It just dropped on Netflix. It is called Duff Live Duff Jesus Duff Five Bloods. Black G.I., is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the soul brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. Gentlemen, welcome back to Vietnam. Look what I found. Dead man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. We bury it. They don't. We come back and collect. Spike Lee's latest feature is his follow-up to the Oscar-winning Black Klansman, and it is summarized online as this. Four African-American Vietnam veterans returned to Vietnam. They're in search of the remains of their fallen squad leader and the promise of buried treasure. These heroes battle forces of humanity and nature while confronted by the lasting ravages of the the immorality of the Vietnam War. And the film itself is exactly what I would expect from a joint these days. It's a kaleidoscope of genres, political commentary, historical commentary, and film history. 
no film stock is off limits, no news footage is too raw or too new for him to doubt its placement, and it's a ride of being in an action film one minute and a, polit a political screed the next, an art house aesthetic throughout, and it's all told through character actors who rarely get roles this rich to shine in. So the whiplash, it can be jarring, and I think in some films he handles it better than others, but it's always worth the ride, and here in this film, Spike Lee has made the treasure of Sierra Madre for Vietnam, and he swaps the credence for Marvin Gaye, and then asks us to examine not only the sin of Vietnam, but the sins of that war and how it lingers throughout cultures throughout the entire world. And uh, yeah, with that said, Tom, where'd you want to start? What, uh, what did you think of the movie? We'll, we'll dive in. And where to start with this movie? Um, it's two and a half hours. Uh, it, it's a lot of movie, yeah. It's a lot of movie. I would say... For the first half, um, I was digging it, and it was kind of moving how I thought. You know, it's definitely very much a Spike Lee joint. Uh, it hits a lot of his trademarks, you know, opening uh, opening segment of, like, a movie montage with real footage, um, which you see in tons of his movies. You know, I just rewatched uh, two of his movies that I just rewatched, Clockers and Crooklyn. Um, which came out back to back right after Malcolm X, you know, mix real footage and one, uh, uh, real, um, uh, black history of New York city in Crooklyn and clockers, real like crime scene photos over a great, uh, song selection. You see that in this movie. Um, like you said, you see him mixing aspect ratios going back to the vietnam flashback suddenly we get boxed into a 4-3 ratio and then go back to the widescreen uh random cuts of still images of actual uh people in the past like we see a lot of muhammad ali a lot of martin luther king um a whole bunch of stuff so it's a lot of spike uh spike being spike which i dig normally and i was into this movie i was along for the ride uh, but I wasn't sure if I loved it or not. And then the last half of the movie happens. And uh, there's a very uh, defining moment that takes place, in my opinion, where this movie suddenly takes a turn. And from that point on, I was so hooked. I had no idea what to expect anymore. I had no idea what to think of each of these characters anymore. Um good and bad and i ended up absolutely loving this movie so so much um my mind is still swirling i just finished it today uh, a couple hours before we started to pod so i'm not sure exactly where i land on it but uh my initial reaction was i think it's a really bold movie i think he takes a ton of chances I think he's really going for it in a really fascinating way. I loved what he ended up doing with the story. I love that it surprised me. Um, I love, I love, I love that Spike more often than not. He doesn't always land this, um, but more often than not, he tries to ask and answer lots of really big questions, and that is so evident throughout this movie, especially in the last half of this movie. He tries to tackle so much. And whether, you know, some things work more than others, maybe some things just flat out fail. I don't know. I'm still working that out in my head. But overall, I thought this movie was a huge, huge success. One of my favorite spikes in a very, very long time. 
Yeah, um, I uh, it's my number one movie of the year right now. Um, Likewise, I, yeah, me too. I feel like, and I say that acknowledging that there are probably a ton of flaws in the movie, um, and but I think, and we're going to talk about Spike more generally after this, but I think just being familiar with Spike Lee's career and being familiar with the kind of storyteller he is, when I'm watching a film like this, it's kind of like, yeah, that's just Spike being Spike. And at this point, if you don't expect that, then, you know, that's on you because he's been doing his thing for years now. And a lot of the art house aesthetic choices that he's doing, a lot of the newsreel footage, the time jumps, the different, you know, film stocks and aspect ratios and anything else that he's doing um, that might seem odd. He's been doing it since the beginning. And this week, you know, I've watched a lot of his movies and there were there were things that just he's been fascinated by his entire career. And I feel like there's nothing in this movie that surprised me. I, I agree that there are chunks of this movie that I was worried about. There was a specifically we'll talk about, I think, later there was a, a five to ten minute chunk in the middle where I got really worried. I was like, oh, no, if if this is the direction the movie's headed, I don't know if I can be on board for the rest of the movie. And then it kind of zigged, zagged again and. I was good, but, um, uh, yeah, it's not a perfect movie. I don't think I will ever argue it's a perfect movie. And I think one of the things I like about Spike so much is that he doesn't make perfect movies. He's just kind of like, I'm going to, I'm going to throw everything I have in here and I, it's, it's going to be ideas. It's going to be angry. It's going to be funny. It's not always going to like be coherent in terms of, it might not seem like one movie to another is politically coherent in the stance that he's trying to take and characters that it might seem like he is being sympathetic to. You might be curious, like, why is this the person he's giving, you know, extra layers to? Because I think, I think Spike has this reputation of being this angry black man. And while I, there's certainly a degree of truth to that. I think if you watch his stories and while certainly all of them focus on race, I think it's very clear when you watch them all that there's different aspects of race that he's interested in. And it's, he doesn't just make white people, the bad guys and black people, the heroes he's interested in the different aspects of black life and different personalities of black people of different ages of uh, different generations and of the sexes. So if you go and look at his movies, there's scenes with black women saying things that are different from the things black women say in other movies because they're different people. And I think his career has been so focused on presenting this wide kaleidoscopic view of black thinking and trying to give as wide an array of voices as possible. And I, I watched this movie kind of marveling at it, both what he was trying for and the weirdness of it and the ambition of it. It was one of those things. Yeah. I watched it kind of knowing it didn't all work and thinking there were chunks that I uh, thought were missteps, but didn't care regardless because I was just so in, in awe of kind of what he was trying for and what he did accomplish regardless of what he didn't. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's true of most of his career. Um, Spike to me, I don't know. He's uh, you know, he's obviously a, a great director. He's one of the best we have right now. Um, but a lot of times I'm kind of surprised that he's uh that directing is his major calling. And obviously, you know, Spike 
one of the great things about Spike Lee is, you know, he's been around since the early mid-80s. So he's been doing this for almost 40 years at this point, which is crazy to think of. But he's been so active that entire time, even when he's not making uh, a narrative feature every 18 months or something. He's doing docs, he's doing music videos, which he, I'm sorry, Spike, I know he likes to call them short films. Um, he, he films one-man plays. And that's what Spike is... To me, I I, I, I feel like I, I view Spike as uh, he easily could have uh, been a playwright and worked in that avenue his entire life. Like it, Especially if you look at his earlier movies like Do the Right Thing or like Crooklyn. Um, they really feel uh, like, like these sprawling dramas that take place in a, you know, one particular neighborhood or one particular set of characters, and they act out in this, like, Shakespearean way. And as he's gotten older, his stories have gotten a lot more complex, and he's starting to adapt uh, material from other people instead of writing his own scripts. And The Five Bloods is really one of his most sprawling examples yet. And like you were saying, he's kind of a guy who throws the kitchen sink at you. He's such a... He's such a huge thinker, and his main focus is obviously about the black experience, black culture, black history, particularly in America, but not exclusively. And I think a lot of times he's using, um, we were, I was talking last week about Neon Genesis and it being like artist therapy for its creator. And I feel like a lot of times Spike's doing the same thing. He's working out a lot of his conflicting feelings about everything that encompasses the black experience in America into all of his movies. Like this movie is, you know, predominantly about a group of friends who fought the Vietnam war together, were traumatized by it. And then years later, come back to try to discover this buried treasure that their fallen comrade left behind in the war. And then the movie ends not to spoil it, the, the actual story, but the movie ends with, uh, footage of a Martin Luther King speech and then there's a text Chiron at the end that just explains that Martin Luther King was assassinated a year later and it's not like this is a movie about Martin Luther King's life or anything you know or even specifically about the civil rights movement in the 1960s like it, it almost it feels like that note almost comes out of nowhere and doesn't have anything in particular specifically to do with the movie but it does because everything that the story is about, while it's about the war and it's about the relationship between all these characters, it all connects to the black experience in the present day as these men are older. Back in the 1960s and 70s during the Vietnam War and during Martin Luther King's era as a civil rights leader and going back and back and back and back. There's a lot of discussion about World War II, about past wars, about being the descendants of slaves and it's he, he's trying to work on all these things at once. And that's why, you know, a lot of his movies can be really messy and they don't always work. And even like this one, we agree, there are some things that don't work. But it's a messy masterpiece. And I'd rather have that than, uh, like I said with the first hour, than what I thought this movie was going to be, which would maybe be an above average, like, war drama or a war thriller, you know? Yeah, so to to dive into specifics, I, I think the main character, I think it's safe to say, is Delroy Lindo. 
and he is him and uh, Clark Peters, who is probably best well known as Lester from The Wire. They are. We have a little Wire reunion. Yeah, yeah, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr., uh, best known for saying "shit" uh, in very long ways, uh, is in this film as well as one of the returning vets. And so, what you pick up very early on is that Delroy Lindo is clearly going through some kind of uh, PTSD. Clearly, has never gotten over the war, and uh, one of the one of the as you mentioned, they are going back to retrieve the remains of their fallen commander, who was played by Chadwick Boseman in the movie. And Boseman is played in flashbacks in the movie. And one of the more interesting uh, choices in terms of casting and aesthetics is that during the flashbacks, they don't change the look of the older men. So it's a young Chadwick Boseman looking like he does right now, like Black Panther himself, mixed with. Delroy Lindo and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. and Clark Peters, and they're going through these, you know, Vietnam action scenes, and they're old men, and they're mixed, and I, that stuff I thought was fascinating. Yeah, they don't they don't de-age the actors. Yeah, they don't de-age right. them at all. They're still old, and yeah. you know, you can talk. I think about film theory reasons for that, or practical budgetary reasons. I think it uh, for me it worked. Um, uh, it was just part of one more level of the straight, like it's just one of 10 things that are kind of going on that I was just like, sure, Spike, like if that's how you want to do it, like that works for me. And I, I would say that the, the so much of this film is about is in reference to apocalypse now and Sierra Madre, uh, the treasure of Sierra Madre. And the film is very much about Delroy Lindo kind of going on his own trip to the, through the jungle, through the heart of darkness and, really having to confront being back in Vietnam and hearing Vietnamese people speaking around him and that triggering a lot. And um, it should also be noted very quickly that Delroy Lindo shows up and immediately puts on a Make America Great Again hat and in an early conversation reveals that he's a Trump voter and uh, they mock him mercilessly for that in a very funny moment. And it sets up this kind of tension in the group that here's this man who is very angry, very reactionary, very... uh, quick to anger and they're trying to make it through the jungle with him as he kind of just regresses into this pain that he has felt for uh, a lot of the sins that they feel that they committed during their time there and a lot of the guilt that he feels about the loss of their friend and as well as his son uh, also tags along for the journey and um, him dealing with his relationship with his son and everything else I would say that's kind of the heart of the film and I just thought Delroy Lindo was fucking incredible. I I've loved Delroy Lindo ever since I was a young boy and watched Get Shorty and and Heist and some of the other '90s flicks that he was a big star in. But just he's never been given this kind of role, and to be given this kind of chance to have a breakthrough and with monologues and there are scenes where he's directly addressing the camera towards the end and there it's just some of the best acting of the year. I think he's incredible. Um, yeah, so tell me what you thought of him. Yeah, that's another Spike characteristic, too. So I, um, like I said, I watched, I ended up having a Delroy Lindo trilogy with Spike Lee. He's uh, he's the father in Crooklyn, which is kind of an autobiographical Spike Lee movie. One of his few kind of lighter uh, films, kind of like this dramedy about a, a family growing up in Brooklyn in the early 70s. And then he's also in uh, Clockers. He, he basically... Uh, plays where you just mentioned the wire he's basically the stringer bell of that movie and now he's the the basically the lead the protagonist and the antagonist of 
to five bloods he's so fucking good in this in this movie he's great in all three and before the five bloods started i was really excited uh knowing that he was one of the four main characters i didn't know he was going to be the main guy but after watching um crooklyn which i had never seen before and clockers which was a rewatch for the first time in 20 years for me and just absolutely falling in love with Delroy Lindo again like you I was a huge fan of him back when I was a kid in the 90s he had such a commanding presence on screen like he was such an intimidating dude um, but he was so like charismatic and smooth I was, I was always a big fan of him but you're right he's never been this good he's never been given this much material you mentioned you know he has moments where he speaks to the camera which is another spike trait that happens in both Crooklyn and in Clockers in Crooklyn, um, Alfred Woodard, who plays Delroy Lindo's wife, the matriarch of the family, has a great uh, scene addressing the camera. And Clockers, Harvey Keitel, who plays the homo side police, um, who's trying to pin a murder on Mackay Pfeiffer's character, um, has a great scene at the end of the movie uh, speaking directly to the camera. It's like, it's another, another thing that you see in. A movie and you're like oh spike you're doing your well not spike to mention thing. the yeah not to mention the famous um 25th do the hour. right things oh, yeah, do, the right too, yeah. do the right thing has the like yeah everyone calling each other the racist slurs throughout yep. the neighborhood and 25th hour has the famous edward norton talking into the mirror right. kind of going about like fuck you marty yeah basically playing off the do the right thing um sequence but um yeah but yeah, so that, it's another Spike Lee trait that works really well. And Delroy Lindo, you you told me, like we said, like we've talked about a lot this year. Who knows what the Oscars are going to look like by the time twenty twenty, the calendar year is over? But they, they've been pushed back. Just side note, they like said they're delaying the, they're expanding the eligibility period and pushing the this the date back for the awards so who knows oh, did they did they they didn't say when they didn't specify they didn't say when they just said they are going to push it back oh, okay. and expand the and expand the window of eligibility well even if it's the next even if the uh, the next oscars covers two years of movies delroy lindo better get his first by the way would be his first oscar nomination because this is one of the best performances i've seen in years this it's so good i mean I don't know if we want to discuss spoilers because this is a brand new release and I really hope people watch this movie. I did see that it was the number one movie trending on Netflix, which is great. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who think it's pretty weird and don't. It it is. It's super weird. And I'm sure it's not going to not everyone's going to love it. But in particular, you know, I mentioned the second half really, really winning me over in an amazing way. And so much of that is because of Delroy Lindo and what his character goes through. I mean, it's not just his performance, but it's the writing of his character and like the beats that that guy has to go through and the choices that he makes, the things that happen to him. There's so much we could get into. Um, maybe, maybe we'll do a little spoiler section next week when we talk more about Spike um, and give people like an extra week to talk about it. But because there's some stuff at the end that I, I, it's some of the best stuff I've seen in a movie in, in a while, and it's you know the main reason why it's my well, favorite you, movie of the year. So yeah, it becomes Shakespearean at the end. Almost. It really, it really does. And uh, so yeah, Spike, uh, Spike's uh, really going for it here. He, I what I what I really appreciated about this movie, and I think what makes it work so much more than just another war movie. I mean, for one thing, it's talking about. Uh, black soldiers in the war which is 
an uncommon angle on war movies in general in Hollywood. But I think so much of, of what it's about is, you know, this idea of, once again, uh, black Americans being forced to fight a war that is in no way going to help black Americans, right? Like, they're, they're fighting the dirty work for this country, for a country that uh, historically and systemically, like we've been talking about for the past several weeks, favors white people. So, you know, why should they care? Why should they even want to fight this war, especially a war like Vietnam, which is so immoral and so many people knew it at the time and so many people were speaking out against it at the time, like we know from history and like we know from this movie, like Muhammad Ali and like Martin Luther King, who uh, both get uh, screen time in this movie and actual uh, historical footage. But not only that, you know, it's not what makes Spike so great, even if his focus is predominantly always on uh, black characters, that doesn't mean that he's always just going to make them heroes and like do-gooders and above reproach, you know? There's so much about um, each of these characters, even the ones that are generally uh, more benevolent, maybe than Delroy Lindo's character, having to deal with like serious demons and trauma they've caused. Like we get a lot of, and I wasn't necessarily expecting this because you don't, you don't get this side of things a lot in Hollywood movies about the Vietnam war. We get a lot of time spent on the trauma that was inflicted on the Vietnamese. And yeah, that's what I, the yeah, that I want to, that they had to deal with at the hands of the invader Americans, which I really appreciated from Spike, especially, you know, I don't want to spoil it too much, but at the end, you know, there's a, it gets a little actiony uh, involving a bunch of locals, but even those characters, Spike makes sure to give us a uh, reason to sympathize with them, you know? Yeah. Throughout the film. And this is kind of what I was trying to point to earlier when I said, like, I, I think people who don't know Spike Lee probably have this, idea in their head that he's this like super pro black guy anti-white or i don't know what they think but i think if you watch his films what's fascinating is that this is a movie that is clearly about putting the attention on the black soldiers who were put on the front line and how we as an american government put the poorest and often the minorities at the front line to be killed first because the rich white kids were able to be in safe positions or stay in the back or, you know, work on the bases or whatever it was. And about how these people who have given the most or sacrificed the most are still not appreciated back home. That's a big theme throughout this movie. But Spike also allows there to be room for the Vietnamese who are there seeing these American GIs return to for that to bring up memories for them to be like, hey, you guys murdered are my mother and children and you were brutal to us. And not only that, but he makes room for the French and the French who were there before the Americans were there and how there was decades of fighting and war before we ever got there and how this, this cycle of war and violence has affected not only Americans, white and black, but Vietnamese North and South and French and the entire world. And he, finds a story that, like I said, not all of this works in some things like there's a French crew um, led by a French woman, I should say, that does nothing but goes throughout Vietnam to try and find landmines that are blowing up still that we left behind. And 
that's just another symbol of these like violent, awful things that we have left behind just to destroy the youth who we see young children without limbs who have just been walking probably around and got caught on a landmine and lost a leg or lost an arm or something. And this film reckons with all of that. And I think it's almost too simplistic to view it as just like a story about, you know, black soldiers and their story being told because he's really trying to tackle the sins of all war and how it affects everyone from all sides. And it's a complicated, yeah, it's a lot of movie as we're trying to say, it's a lot to digest after just one viewing. So I'm excited to kind of dive back into it. Yeah. And even though he's, he manages to somehow fit in moments and bring up questions about all of those things. The, the, the main um, story that we follow of these four black soldiers these four vietnam vets um they're not shortchanged at all i mean like i said delroy lindo's character goes through uh one of the most traumatic journeys i've seen in a really long time and um and he's not really likable for long stretches really no he's an outright villain for a lot of it i mean yeah he's not there are moments he wished that his friends would just blow his head off because he's seriously endangering them and yeah, and, and when I mentioned that like 10 minutes of the movie where I was a little worried, I, it was the 10 minutes where he sort of took control in a way that I was like, there's no way this group would let him take control like that. Like, I just don't believe that. Right. And thankfully, the movie, like within a few minutes, kind of corrected that and dealt with it. But I was a little worried that, that was going to become the rest of the movie yeah. at a certain point. Basically, um, like I said, maybe we'll get more specific later. But for me, uh, once the first... Uh, the first real landmine uh, thing happens at, with the rope. Uh, yeah, and and the moments before, once yeah. once that scene took place, everything from there on is like would would be a top five movie in the past several years for me, pretty much. Cool. Yeah, I was kind of already there. I, I think. I mean, I, 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 I already liked it at that point, but I think everything yeah. after that, I just, I, I had to put my hands up and be like, okay, I don't know where this movie's going anymore. Yeah, and so, all right. Well, we both highly recommend it. It's, it's newly available. Maybe we'll dive into a little bit more because I think we plan on talking about Spike more next week. So, I think with that, let's kind of use this to spread out into the other titles that you've watched this week and I've watched this week um, over the past couple weeks. I think we use this time as we're reflecting on our own whiteness and knowing that he had a movie coming out. It seemed like a golden opportunity to look back on his filmography and see what built up to Defy Blood. So, um, yeah, I, I watched over the last few weeks, I've watched Clockers, which I know you watched. I rewatched Jungle Fever. I rewatched uh, School Days and Malcolm X and Get on the Bus. And it's been it's been very rewarding just kind of going through his career and seeing the the consistencies. And also he's been working for so long that I think some of the things that in reviews that were taken for granted, like, oh, this movie's sloppy or it's only about this one thing and it's the script's not all there. I think now we can kind of look back on it. A lot of his projects and see it all working as a whole and being like, yeah, I understand that the story doesn't hundred percent work here, but what he's doing is amazing. He kind of reminds me a lot of Steven Soderbergh in terms of just a director who's going to try everything, every genre, every format, every style, any camera, you know, like he's going to be doing a bamboozled on, you know, cheap, shitty 
DV cam and then he's going to go do an epic and then he's going to go do a documentary and then a music video and then he's going to go do another concert film or something. You know, he's just doing everything. And it's been very rewarding working through his filmography the last few weeks. And I look forward to watching a few more. So I'm curious what your takeaways were this week watching his his films and what it was like. I think we're we've both been lifelong fans. So I, yeah. I, I don't know that. I don't think most of this for me was rewatching. I've seen most of his films before. And I think next week we're going to dive into some of the more obscure titles. But this week, I think we wanted to focus a bit on the bigger titles and some of the things that really were interesting to us. And um, I I don't think we're going to talk about do the right thing and Malcolm X all that much, but I think, you know, it should go without saying that those are the two that I think you should absolutely see if you have not seen them. Yep. And those are the two big ones especially do the right thing. If you haven't seen do the right thing, just please turn us off right now. Come back when you're done. Uh, it's not, you have no excuse. Go watch do the right thing. It's a, it's a perfect specimen of a film. Yeah. Perfect specimen of a film. What the hell does that mean? (laughs) It means everything about it. And it's it's a perfect perfect specimen is funny. Um, it's a perfect object, but I agree. Uh, I don't think I know I did. I, I don't think you rewatch it this week, but we've both seen it many, many times. It's, uh, in both of our all time favorite movie lists. It is an absolute must. Uh, if you're a film buff, you have to see that movie. And even if you're not, especially right now, you, if you're going to watch any non-documentary movie, although I would say the five bloods is very, uh, poignant and topical and urgent. And it's, uh, Sadly, uh, it's great timing for that movie right now. It just it's sad, but it's true. Um, but if you were to pick any non-documentary to watch, I would argue do the right thing. Um, I don't know if you could get if you could pick a better movie to watch considering the current climate. No, no, especially the ending. It's, yeah, it should it should be taught in every school, not and, even just film school, just every school. I agree, and same same with Malcolm X. It's a it's truly an epic documentary uh, about a guy who maybe uh, historically gets the short shrift compared to Martin Luther King um, in terms of black leaders of the nineteen sixties that we talk about. Um, but yeah, so we're not going to spend a lot of time. I I'm curious. Uh, you know, Jungle Fever is a movie I've never watched, so maybe I need to get on that. Um, it's um. Uh, same thing. I, there's so many ideas that he's trying for. I think if uh, Jungle Fever, the problem is he gets too enamored with the supporting characters, and once the relationship starts, it the movie is, I think, a bit more interested in people's reaction to the relationship than he is in the actual relationship. Yeah. And uh, I would say that's kind of my main gripe with the movie. Like, There's a lot of fascinating stuff in there. Um, definitely worth watching. But I wish he, once the relationship started, focuses more on the actual relationship itself. Yeah. Um, so I watched... Much, oh, sorry. Yeah. That's all I was going to say. And I was just going to say that um, Get on the Bus, Malcolm X, School Days, and something are all... Avail- and Inside Inside Man are all on Netflix right now. Very easy to watch. As is um, uh, She's Gotta Have It. Is also yeah, as is she, which in yeah. the movie and the series, and he directed the series as well. Yeah, um, so, I, I watched. I have watched the series. The series is fun. I don't know if it's essential, but it's fun. So I watched uh, for this uh, episode. I like I said, I rewatched uh, Crooklyn, or I'm sorry, watched Crooklyn for the first time. I rewatched Clockers. 
I watched a good chunk of Miracle at St. Anna, which I haven't seen since theaters. And then I also rewatched for the first time in a very long time <coughs> Mo Betta Blue. Um, oh, you watched Mo Betta? Which is honestly a movie I never loved. So I, that's kind of why I wanted to rewatch it. I was going to watch Jungle. That one's pretty high. That one's pretty high for me, actually. Okay. So I was going to, I was actually going to put on Jungle Fever since I hadn't seen it. I mean, I've seen parts of Jungle Fever like on cable back in the day. Um, but I, I, I was looking at him like, you know, Mo Better Blues, I watched and I didn't love and I don't remember it too well. Why don't I get to that and then I'll go to Jungle Fever? I don't know why I just decided to do it that way. And I still kind of feel the same way. I, I like it, but it, I definitely don't love it. And I don't know, it, it doesn't feel very essential to me as a Spike Lee movie. And also another thing, I think... Just in the interest of maybe uh, of fairness with Spike Lee, and also I'm curious about uh, what you think about this and where you stand on this. Uh, you know, Mo Betta Blues is uh, about a musician, the life of a musician, and there's a sequence, or there are two characters in the movie uh, who are club owners, uh, two Jewish club owners, who are uh, shady characters. Um they're basically hucksters and i was i was on the wikipedia page for the movie after watching it and spike lee got in some trouble after this movie came out by the anti-defamation league and the jewish defamation league um, for his stereotypical portrayal of these two jewish club owners and uh, Spike's response was basically, uh, why are you calling me out for it? Is it because I'm black? You know, you see uh, stereotypical portrayals of black people in movies all the time. Like, not every uh, black character in a film is a pimp or a drug dealer or a murderer or a bank robber. Um, so to say that I'm doing this is somehow unique in Hollywood seems unfair. And also... If you're trying to insinuate that uh, there's never been a Jewish person who is basically uh, a, a con artist, that's unfair as well. And to this day, as far as I know, he's never apologized for it. Um, he stands by, I know publicly, he said a few years ago, you know, I stand by all my characters, including those characters. Uh, I'm not even, I'm not saying he needs to apologize for it or anything, just mentioning the facts that he hasn't. I was curious what you said, what you think about someone who, you know, Clint Eastwood in the late 1980s made the Charlie Parker biopic Bird, and Spike Lee called him out for making that movie, saying, you know, that's a a major black art icon. That movie should be made by a black guy, and you know, famously, Clint Eastwood basically said, "Well, a black guy should have made it then," which is maybe a little tone deaf when you consider, <laughs> you know, how many black directors really had an opportunity to make that movie. But that's maybe a more complicated issue. I don't know. But I'm curious as, you know, Spike is a guy who calls out bullshit when he sees it, has spent his whole career um, fighting for equality and equal opportunities for black people. And then he gets called out for uh, this anti-Semitic portrayal. What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, I, as someone who has always loved Spike Lee, I think I've always had that love of him with the mixture of, I, I roll my Quentin Tarantino's in the same camp of people who like I'd prefer not to read interviews with them because I'll I'll probably roll my eyes quite a bit at what they have to say and 
many respects about different things. With him, he has drawn a lot of characters through his movies, and a lot of his movies are about those characters. So I, I do think about what he's a, Ca- oh, characters. caricatures, kind of, yeah, kind of like caricatures, b- b- yeah, broad stereotypes um, of black people and bamboozled and blackface and um, Italians. I think he is. Um, especially the Italians or something in like do the right thing. He talks about how he basically watched Martin Scorsese movies and is kind of doing the, like the Italian that he imagines is kind of like, Hey, it's a pizza pie thing. Yeah. You, know? like, you also see that in, in clockers and Crookland too. Yeah. Like that's very much his kind of depiction of those people. He's not as interested in, finding the nuance of that. And I think his argument would be like, look, you guys have portrayed black people as like chucking and jive and whatever is for a hundred plus years. Like, sorry if I didn't give enough credence to you white sub characters or something. I think that's generally been his response. Um, in terms of like, I, I, I'd have to rewatch Mo Betta Blues. I, I know what scenes you're talking about, but I don't remember the specifics enough to comment on them. Yeah. It, it didn't bother I, me personally. I mean, I, I, I thought the same thing. Like, I feel like those characters, those uh, two Jewish owners are, like you said, no different than his his Italian side characters that, you know, aren't given any major focus or character development, basically. Yeah, I, I think he, I, I do think there was a period of his career where I, as someone who's just read interviews, I wished he would stop attacking other directors. He, I think he definitely, I, he had a period where he was kind of gunning after other directors and I understand in some cases why certain things bothered him, um, like the Quentin Tarantino's use of the N word um, has was an early one in my life in terms of their kind of rivalry with Sam Jackson in between as someone who had worked with both of them extensively and kind of been like, look, I'll, I'm happy for the work. The black people say these things. Quentin's writing them. It doesn't bother me. Yeah. Whereas Spike's like, he doesn't have the right to say that thing, you know, and they're two different, very valid, I think, per- perspectives, but... That both both directors what, who like to insert themselves in small acting roles in their movies. Yes, too. yes. And but I, I, as far as I know, here's what I've come to understand. I actually even saw a thing today on um, on Twitter about it. Uh, weirdly, be, between Spike Lee and um, Clint Eastwood, because Paul Walter Hauser, who is in, he's one of the landmine people. In that I mentioned in the, the Five Bloods, he was also one of the KKK members in Black Klansman, and he was Richard Jewell in Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell from last year. And the and, uh, the club wielder in I, Tanya. Yes, yes. He, he's a, a very funny, very funny man. He's very good at playing a dumb Legitimately hit. great actor, too. Yeah, he's got, yeah. yeah. I and mean, he's very, as someone who was kind of down the middle with Richard Jewell, like I was, he deserved a Best Actor nomination. He's incredible in that movie. And uh, he, he posted something on Twitter today about he was exchange, he was in the middle of like Spike was telling him things to say to Clint and Clint was saying like, oh, well, tell Spike I said this. And he's like, I know it might not appear from the outside, but these two get along wonderfully and they respect each other. And you have that kind of you might have a conservative like Clint Eastwood who is, you know, maybe has depicted something like Bird or um other things like even American Sniper, which might be seen as jingoistic or very Republican and or fucking or Gran Torino. Yeah, and Gran Torino and all these other things. But he also, it's weird to think about. Uh, he's the guy who made Gran Torino and he also made Letters from Iwo Jima, yep. which 
and it, there's all these contradictions kind of within Clint Eastwood and Clint Eastwood is a jazz fan. And I think that's where a lot of bird came from. But at the same time, Spike was against Norman Jewison directing Malcolm X, which I think is understandable. He was just like a white person, a white Jew old man should not be telling the story of Malcolm X. Like that this is for black people. And that was one of the earliest points of, I think a black director with some power asserting themselves in a way of saying like, this is our story. We are telling this in the same way that I think a modern version might be like Steven Spielberg or whoever is not allowed to direct the black Panther movie. I don't care yeah. that whatever we need a black director to direct this movie. It'd be like if a studio hired me to go direct the Martin Luther King movie, they people would be like, what? what? And don't do that. Yeah. Like Ben um, Affleck probably should direct Schindler's list or something like that. Yeah. You're like, let's, let's try and, and that's part of, I think what we've been talking about in terms of white people knowing their place and kind of being willing to step aside and being like, you know what, let them tell that story. Um, I think that's, you know, kind of in keeping with the broad conversation we've been having about, this kind of reckoning that's been happening in culture. But I think that's one of the things that studio systems need to be aware of. And all, you know, anybody else who's doing a lot of hiring is, and it's not just that white people can't tell black stories or cause you know, Spike Lee directed 25th hour, which is a predominantly white cast. And no one's going to tell him like, Hey, you're not allowed to tell that story because it's about white people. You know, like that's not really the issue. I think it's about certain aspects of black life. Like we're, or any other thing where it's like Indian life or a female or teenage life where it's like, look, we don't just want old white men telling these stories. We need to kind of give room for these other people, the the Barry Jenkins of the world or whoever, the Lulu Wangs to tell these stories about foreign cultures or queer cultures or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and I think Spike was an early voice advocating that, which I think is great. And, but I also do think he stepped over the line sometimes. I think he regret, I think he's apologized more often than not in terms of like later years. Like I know he attacked Tyler Perry for a while and has since kind of been like, I take it back. Tyler Perry's, I don't agree with the, I don't like the movies he's making, but he's doing just fine for black people. Yeah. And you know? whatever, whatever Spike said earlier in his career and whatever, uh, you know, maybe if he leaned on some stereotypes in his, like ancillary characters in his movies earlier in his career. I think it speaks to what we were just saying about the five bloods. Um, and you look at ancillary characters in that, like the quote unquote bad guys, uh, the local Vietnamese bad guys at the end of the movie, or like that one, that one very brief scene where uh, a local guy in a market is trying to sell Delroy Lindo a chicken. And it's this, uh, this Vietnamese dude who's in the movie for 30 seconds and he's just pest- he just won't he's just take no for an Delroy answer. Delroy yeah. Lindo, he won't take no for an answer. Delroy Lindo just freaks out on him. He's you know clearly traumatized to deal with PTSD, and he's got a whole host of other issues that he's not dealing with. And the Vietnamese just fights back at him like, "You killed my mother and my father. You're dirty American GI." And you suddenly start to understand like, "Oh damn, yeah, I get why he would be mad at this guy too for coming back to his country." Like he suddenly. Uh, instead of maybe leaning on those stereotypes like he would have earlier in his career and those movies that were that maybe felt more like operatic and play like kind of like what i mentioned suddenly those characters are given a lot more uh depth and are grounded in reality later in his career so he's definitely involved in that way in a cool way yeah but even even do the right thing you know like he sal and you know sal's pizzeria is just as sympathetic one of his best characters and do the right thing as any of the black characters and i think 
he understands that by giving those other cultures or different races or different characters more backstory and making them richer characters, that makes everything more complex and more human and more realistic and messier, but also the, probably the things that we kind of deal with more in life than just as simple as this side is right and this side is wrong. It's like, no, there are Sal is presented and do the right thing as a perfectly nice guy who is proud of his shop, who likes living in this or who likes working in this neighborhood. And he expresses a great amount of pride at being able to be the one who provided pizza for this neighborhood. And he's like, these kids grew up on my food. I love that. And I built this for my bare hands and I'm proud of that. And he even shows like sexual attraction to a black woman at one point in that movie. And he's always been good about giving these characters more than just racism. And yes, at the end of that movie, Sal has a one little hint, one little moment, I guess I should say of anger and racism. And he says, you know, the, he says the N word and uh, has a moment where it leads to the destruction of everything. But we understand in that moment that that is not all there is to that character and that, and that human beings are more complex. And that's what I've always loved about Spike is that he's willing to kind of dive into that murky middle ground, even though not every movie is successful and sometimes he bites off more than he can chew. I just like continue to love that. He's one of the few voices out there actually, consistently tackling this thing, you know, this hard, difficult thing. And he's tackling it from every angle, from every genre, from every film stock, from every time in history, like nothing is off limits to him. And that's just why he's one of my absolute favorites. Yeah, I agree. So let's go uh, just based off of what we've watched and, you know, just we're trying to stay focused on some of the bigger titles before we move next week into the, the docs and maybe smaller titles. So, um, you know, next for me, in the chronology was Crooklyn, which I'll just touch on briefly because it was a first time viewing for me. And I was, I was a big fan of Crooklyn. I really liked it. And, uh, what I liked about it, it reminded me, I, I think it's the movie that it's probably closest to in his filmography, at least from what I've seen is actually do the right thing. Um, just in the sense that it, you really get a feel for a particular neighborhood and all the people who live inside that neighborhood. It's like living. It's about living in a brownstone and enjoying life in a neighborhood. Yeah, a predominantly in, black neighborhood in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, predominantly black, but not entirely black, which I which I also appreciated. And it's kind of like the the lighthearted version of Do the Right Thing, where you see, you know, it focuses on this one particular black family of a mother and father who are still together and they have five kids. Um, it mostly follows the parents and the uh, the one the lone daughter of the group um i wouldn't say it's i guess it it ends up kind of being a coming of age story a little bit but i'd say it's more of like just a slice of life story um i know it's very autobiographical for spike um he was you know around that girl's age probably around 10 years old in like 1970 i think it takes place in 72 because there's a scene where you find out the knicks won which only happened twice and uh, they were able to rule out 1970 because of a specific event that happens in the movie, which I'm not blanking on. I just read about it the other day, and now I'm forgetting. But anyway, um, the standout in that movie is Delroy Lindo plays the dad, and he's great, but Alfre Woodard as the mom is so good in that movie. She... she yeah, ugh, she's I, a, a loving mom with a secret. I ended up looking up 
his movie or ended up looking up that movie afterwards because I I didn't even know how well reviewed it was. Like I knew you know it had its fan. It's it's a, I would consider it a major Spike title. Uh, it's hard to follow up, do the right thing. Yeah, it is. Even though it it wasn't immediately after, I, although it was the movie after Malcolm X. Um, like, and I was reading, you know, after the. Oh yeah, that's what I was thinking. It yeah. was his follow up. That and Clockers were his Malcolm X follow. up Right, he did Crooklyn and then Clockers immediately after. And I, I guess you know, Malcolm X has a historically very difficult uh, production schedule. They ran out of funding and needed guys like Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan to give them finishing funds for that movie. Um, he had to fight to keep it three hours long, um, and I guess he just he wanted to make something a little more personal and down to earth. Uh, it's a really fun movie. It was really like, you know, we've spent the last several weeks uh, dealing with everything that's going on in the country, not even uh, the protests and police brutality and really trying to come to terms with systemic racism in America. But, you know, the coronavirus and shit is still going on. Everyone's unemployed. We still have Trump as president. Shit sucks. There are killer hornets everywhere. So it was kind of nice to watch a Spike movie that was... Uh, a little, a little gentler. Even though it's not like an out-and-out comedy or anything, there are some, uh, some very serious moments. And while not everything worked for me overall, I was a really big fan. I think it just it really showcases his visual skills as a director, and it's just a really good acting showcase, uh, particularly for Alfred Woodard. I was a big fan. Um, but then the next movie in his chronology is Clockers, which we both watched, so we can both talk about that. What, yeah. What do you think I, about well, Clockers, man? I really like Clockers upon rewatching it. Um, I, I will say I agree with you about Crookland. It, it's been a few years since I watched it, but um, it's weird that you say how nice it was to watch. My actual, my memories of it are being sad. I, not to spoil it, but I like well, yeah, the ending of the movie. It's a downer ending. It's a downer ending, but uh, for some reason when I think of the movie, I'm like, oh, that was a sad movie. But I realize like most of it's quite warm, and I remember the soundtrack being incredibly. Soundtrack like, is just, so good. It's such I, a great I actually, soundtrack. Yeah, I've been listening to the soundtrack as I've been writing lately. Actually, it's it's um it's a very a very fun, full of hits that you know. It's just it's a fun soundtrack. And yeah, it's a, it's a great mix of like early rap and then seventies soul music and stuff like that, like Motown and stuff. I mean, it is a yeah. downer ending in the sense that uh, <laughs> um, uh, family we, we, we don't need to spoil it, but yeah, yeah, someone, yeah. someone, yeah, yeah, someone, um, someone that, gets sick, but it also is triumphant at the end. Um, yeah, and you know it ends on a on a positive note. Yeah, that and I I know that I've referenced it with like multiple people. I don't know how I'm going to use it, but one day down the road as a filmmaker, I plan on stealing the effect that he uses when the character goes to I think it's Georgia. No, don't where, don't do that. No, <laughs> no, I I wouldn't use it that extensively, but like I feel like there's a way to play with that in a short term period. I don't know. It's a, it's an effect that's always fascinating. No, it's me. a horrible effect. It's the worst part of that movie. That is <laughs> I, I like when he plays with aspect ratio and perspective. I'm down with all that. But that is literally just that is when you when you rip a widescreen movie and uh project it in the wrong aspect ratio. That's all he did. Yeah. And it looks basically horrible. Yeah, it he, looks so bad. He basically he crunched the images. Yeah, and he takes kind of, he yeah, takes a widescreen image that he, he shoot he shot in widescreen and projected it in uh in four by three in like Academy ratio. And it makes it look very squeezed in and crunched. The goal was the the young daughter of the family has to go live 
with her southern aunt and uncle for a little while who are who are these like super religious um you know sheltered southern folk and she just hates it she's miserable there so the 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 point of it is to make her feel, you know, claustrophobic and boxed in. But all it makes you think is, oh, something's wrong with the transfer. That's all it does. It's a hor- It was a horrible idea. Or it, I say, well, the like, idea is fine, I, but he should have figured out a, a different technique. Please, please never do that, Phil. No, yeah, like I said, I would never do the exact same thing. But there's something to it in terms of, like, making you physically uncomfortable with, like, uh, just by really fucking with the aspect ratio that I'm I'm intrigued by. Yeah, but there's and a way it, you can do it that doesn't feel like a technical error. Yeah, I guess it's like I wonder what people who aren't film nerds that know about aspect ratio how what they would think of it if they would just be like it looks like because the movie I to people who don't know what we're talking about the movie kind of looks like it goes through like a funhouse mirror effect or something where like things get stretched out and kind of awkward squeezed in and not right and the effect i think is because this character leaves brooklyn and is out of their comfort zone and it's kind of meant to replicate their alienation and how awkward this new world that they've entered into is and i think that's the point of it if i remember correctly but yeah i agree it's a very strange effect but those are the things he's willing to try and i think that's kind of what i respect about spike generally the things that don't work i'm always kind of like ah well at least he's trying shit yeah that was one that definitely didn't work and especially because it's a solid like 20 minutes worth of scenes yeah it's too long i will agree with you that he spends too much time doing that that's like a, a four minute scene that i you know that i'm talking about like oh that'd be interesting for a stretch but not not 20 minutes of the movie um, but anyway, yeah, like you were saying about clockers, um, you mentioned clockers. I rewatched that recently. I had not seen that like you in a number of years. Um, and in the meantime, I had read the book. One so of the very first, uh, DVDs I ever owned. Oh, that's interesting. It was like the second or third one I bought after wild things. Mine was, uh, the Delroy Lindo co-starring get shorty. Hey, so that was a couple hey, of 95. So, he had a big year, 1995 clockers yeah. and get shorty. And Congo. Let's not forget Congo. Um, okay. I don't know if that was 95, but that was that was early Delroy Lindo for me. The point is, anyway, let's not forget it. Yeah. No one forget Congo, Michael Crichton's masterpiece. Anyway, Clockers, a fantastic film. It's uh, it's about Mackay Pfeiffer and Harvey Keitel and Delroy Lindo, and, and it follows, I, I, I would say, a, an investigation, but it's kind of it's not really a mystery. It is, but it isn't. I don't know. It's much more about like the relationship with the police and this victim, uh, or, or Mackay Pfeiffer, who's not a victim, but, um, it's much more about their relationship than it is about solving any mystery and, um, his life and his interactions with Delroy Lindo. And yeah, it was a fascinating movie. Uh, Like, what did you think of it upon rewatching it? I, my, I was reacting to it based on the book, which I had read and the book is much more from the detective's point of view than it is from Mackay Pfeiffer's. I could tell after rewatching it, I was like, Oh, that was the big change here was spike came over and took over. And uh, he wanted to talk about the Mackay Pfeiffer character more than he cared about the Harvey Keitel character. Yeah, because I think what he's probably more interested in, and I think the the thing the movie succeeds in the most is uh, more than the the police angle. Like basically, what happens is uh, there's a murder that takes place. Delroy Lindo, like I said, he's uh, the stringer bell of this neighborhood, um, and Mackay Pfeiffer is a clocker who's like a a park bench drug runner. Um, yeah, he's like and, a DeAng- It's very season one of the wire. The exactly, and uh, you know Delroy Lindo 
ask Makai's character to uh, to take out this guy who uh, is basically stealing from Delroy. And so the guy ends up shot. Um, it's set up to look like uh, Makai Pfeiffer probably did it, but we don't actually see it. And there's some suspicion that maybe his brother, who's this like well-to-do black guy who has you know two jobs, wife and kids, um, he confesses to the murder. And so Harvey Keitel and John Turturro play the two homicide detectives investigating it. They think they have a confession, but Harvey Keitel does not buy it. He thinks Makai Pfeiffer, the drug-dealing brother, is actually responsible and that his clean, no-record brother, who is claiming self-defense, is taking the the rap for his brother. So he'll, you know, spend a, a small amount of time in jail and save his brother from, you know, 25 or a lifetime in prison. Um, so that's the setup for the plot. But what I think what the movie's more interested in, like you said, is the relationship between Keitel and Makai Pfeiffer, the mind games, especially that Keitel's playing on him to trying to get uh, a confession out of Makai Pfeiffer's character, but also the relationship between Delroy Lindo and Makai Pfeiffer and kind of the insidious way um, drug culture kind of infests poor black neighborhoods. I think that's a huge focus of the movie. Um there's a there's a C story I guess of Mackay Pfeiffer starting to groom this young boy, it's like ten or ten or twelve year old boy, who lives yeah. who lives in the same project house as him, and he starts like he gets him a nice haircut, he starts buying him clothes, um, you know Delroy Lindo's character, he runs a candy store, so if you weren't sure about the message Spike's going for, he literally is like that criminal offering kids candies to seduce them, but instead of being a pedophile, he wants them to start running drugs for him and being lookouts for him for his drug operation, um, selling crack to, to people and just making them addicts. Um, so that all, all of that stuff, I really, really liked. Um, I thought Harvey Keitel was great. I thought John Turturro was really great in a small role. I thought Delroy, once again, was awesome. This has been my Delroy Lindo week, and I've loved it. My biggest problem with the movie, I don't think Mackay Pfeiffer is that great in the movie. Uh, I'm not gonna I I'm not gonna disagree with you too strongly about that one. He, I just wish they got a better. I and I used to be a huge Mackay Pfeiffer fan as a kid. I don't know why. I just really liked him, but I, I eight, mi- eight mile. What, what no, I, no. I'm talking earlier. I'm talking like maybe because I saw Clockers and I was like 11, so I just thought he was great. And then he was in. I still know what you did last summer, but I feel like there was something else around that time, like mid late 90s, that I really liked him in. But I can't think of it right now. But yeah, rewatching it this week, he felt just kind of like an overactor, and I don't know. There, there's this angle. You know, he. he one of the the character, um, one of the particulars of his character is that he's big into train sets. You know, he kind of gets made fun of with all of his drug dealing buddies that he's kind of like a nerd and just kind of yeah. not a natural fit in the drug world. And so there's this this constant back and forth about um, is he ratting to the cops? Is he trying to get out of this culture? Um, there's another, there's a black cop who lives in the housing project. You can tell was trying to save him from this life and failed. And, um, yeah, I, I feel like we're supposed to feel like this, this guy, Makai Pfeiffer's character is kind of a, a, a nerd or something who was forced into this lifestyle and deserves better. And he does, obviously everyone does, but 
I didn't get that sense from him because of his performance. I just feel like it wasn't strong. And since he's the lead and he's in basically every single scene, that was kind of a barrier for me. But overall, I did like it. And like I said, all this stuff about um, the way uh, drugs are used in, in these poor black neighborhoods as a means to make money because they're given so few opportunities in general and the way predators like Del Orlando's character can really take advantage of it and really get after you from a very, very young age to the point where you're locked in. I mean, there's a running theme of uh, people in power in this world getting younger people to murder for them so they are stuck so they have no option otherwise because now they have something on you and if you ever try to get out they can pin this thing on you that can take your entire life away and that's so insidious and evil and um so all that stuff i really loved i was a big fan of all that my my memory especially was that he needed to turn the seal down um on the soundtrack Turn the what down? The seal. I don't know. You remember seal? Oh, S-E-A-L. yes, yes. yes. I, I, my note watching it was like, damn, Spike. I know you like this new seal album, but turn it the fuck down, man. Like there was like five scenes that I was like, that seal's blasting through. He loves, like, damn man. He loves using. Uh, he loves licensing popular music in his movies. Oh, to go back briefly, there are two sequences. It's used twice, like you were saying about the five bloods. Instead of it being Credence in this movie, it's Marvin Gaye. And there are two sequences where he isolates the vocals of what's going on. And it's the first time he does it in particular, uh, focuses on Delroy Lindo's character. And it's, oh God, Phil, it's such a good scene. Yeah. So I, I I would say of the, of the movies that we talked about, um, Malcolm X is three and a half hours it's on netflix right now and i think it feels like homework or sounds like homework to people but i i even me i i as someone who's a spike lee fan who kind of enjoys his sprawling messes of movies i have only seen it all the way through like up till twice i I, maybe twice um up till this week and then i watched it again and i was really just pleasantly surprised once again like oh yeah this is a incredibly fast moving movie flies by yeah, the movie flies by. I was like, oh, this is an easy watch. It's an incredibly easy three and a half hour watch. And with Denzel Washington giving every kind of performance you could ever expect from an actor, he's just doing everything. He's giving one of the best performances in the 90s. He's giving his probably best performance ever. It's incredible. And, it, you know, we can't, we're two white boys. I don't want to spend too much time telling you to go watch Malcolm X, but go watch Malcolm X. Um, but of, of the smaller titles that I watched this week, I think school days was one that is interesting and school days and get on the bus, I think are both interesting for in some ways, the same reason both are about school days is about a black college, which is clearly based on his Morehouse experience of different black fraternities and sororities and different types of black intellectuals having different ideas about the future of black identity and school days is a college set version of that where you have Lawrence Fishburne and um, Giancarlo Esposito. I blanked on his name for a second. Um, who is most widely known to people who are breaking bad fans as the chicken man. Um, the, the big bad of Gus. That show. Yeah. Yeah. Gus. And uh, yeah, but he, as a, he is 
used throughout many of Spike's movies uh, throughout his history. So if you're a fan of his, go check out Spike Lee's early movies. You'll see a lot um, of different performances from him other than the kind of performance he gives as Gus. Um, but he shows up. Of and who? What's his name? The actor? G, uh, Giancarlo Esposito. <laughs> I just wanted to hear you say it again with your accent. Giancarlo to... Esposito. Yes. Um, God, what did I I said something the other day that even Shell was like, what did you say? Bang. Oh, uh, uh, cement, cement. I said cement. Instead like, of cement? Some, yeah, and she was like, the cement? Um, <laughs> she was making fun of me. Anyway. Oh, man. Anyway. Continuing. Anyway. School days and get School on the bus, days. you were saying. School days and, and get on the bus is uh, takes place and it's about a bus that gets loaded on in L.A. and is driving cross country to the Million Man March in Washington, D.C. And same thing. I think the movie came out in the 90s and that movie is generally just a, an ensemble of black actors from different age ranges and backgrounds giving and the movie just gives them a place to sit on a bus and have conversations while they drive cross country and debate the kind of modern landscape of black identity. And I think both movies, that's something all he's interested in is I'm going to put my characters in a place to have these debates about political issues that are important to me. And, you know, I think some people, especially critics, when these movies come out are kind of like, what is there to the story? I get that you just wanted to have a release for these actors to, talk and improv and talk about these ideas, but it's not much of a story. And I think, like I was saying earlier, as you kind of get further back and look at his career as a whole, it's just kind of more fascinating when you're like, yeah, there's nobody else making these movies. There's no other movies that I can point to that has 20 black actors debating black identity. And, and the fact that he's able to do this in ways that are both funny and meta and stylistically kind of progressive and, yeah, like it doesn't all work, but it, revisiting stuff like that, like School Days and Get on the Bus, I was like, these are the titles that I don't think are top tier Spike Lee, but that speak to everything he's tried to do in his career. And in, in all of them, there are scenes or moments that are transcendently beautiful. I, so it was very nice revisiting them, um, especially like Get on the Bus, which I had seen a lot of on HBO as a kid, weirdly, because it was on all the time. You know, I um, that's the only time I haven't seen it all the way through through in one sitting but i've i'm sure i've seen the entire movie because i saw chunks of it so many times on hbo in the late 90s. it was yeah i it was one of the it was weirdly a movie that was just on all the time on yep, hbo totally. i don't know why i had seen it like you a lot in chunks but this week was the first time i was i think i probably sat down proper to watch it beginning to end and i'll admit it's not like a masterpiece but in terms of just depending on what you're asking a movie to do for you. If, if all you want to do is sit down and watch really great actors have different points of view that conflict with each other and have a debate, I think like you were saying, it seems almost more like a playwright where you that could be a play. It could just be a play set on a bus about people driving cross country and debating these ideas, and that would be fine. But, you know, in cinema, I like that he has these war epics that are full of violence and time flashes and whatever else, like the, the Five Bloods, but he also has these super intimate stories that are just men on buses talking about ideas and yeah that's that's what i always remember from that movie is uh watching it when i was younger and i would always just get sucked into the conversations happening on the bus as it was traveling down the highway and and I, i would always just remember watching it and being like this is interesting and like feeling like i was getting smarter watching those scenes you know that's my impression of that movie, something I haven't watched in two plus decades. And I 
hopefully we'll have seen it by the time uh, we record our next episode. Yes, and speaking of next episodes, we're going to continue to talk about Spike Lee. Uh, we're going to watch more of his movies and dive into, I think, some of the more obscure movies and some of the, I think, focus especially on his documentaries because he has released Four Little Girls, which is a documentary that is available on HBO right now, which is, I think, one of the best documentaries of the 90s, one of the best documentaries about the history of race in this country or in America. And yeah, it's, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the levees broke his movie about Katrina. Um, we're going to talk about, uh, some of the weirder, more obscure, smaller titles. And, uh, we're going to talk about some other things. So we're going to, this conversation is not over. Uh, there's a lot to reckon with, with his career. And I'm kind of excited just to watch a few more. Me too. Um, especially after, you know, I, the five bloods was the last one of his, I watched this week. Um, and having seen that new one now, I'm even more excited to go back for more. Before we wrap up, if you had to give me your top three or five fiction features, Spike Lee, not docs, not shorts, not music videos, just the fiction films, do you have a top three or top five you could run off for me right now? Yeah, my top three is Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and He Got Game. Um four being four little girls. Um my number five is actually Mo Better Blues. Um which I'll be honest, that's the one it's been a little while since I've seen it, but I, I was always a giant fan of it. So you would put and that above the five bloods right now, or are you just not considering that movie? I currently have the five uh, no, I didn't put the five bloods in here yet. Um no, yeah, I haven't ranked the five bloods. I'm not sure where that would go. Um my top 10 right now is Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, He Got Game, Four Little Girls, and Mo Better Blues in the top five. And then the six through 10 is 25th Hour, Bamboozled, Inside Man, Black Klansman, and Crooklyn. So, I mean, but it's all like, I love, I'm a big fan. Like, I, I really am a, it's hard. It, it's not like a giant difference between number six and number 10 for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to ignore the docs for now. I'll include those next week. But just fiction features or narrative features. Uh, just outside my top five would probably be... I Like I said, I, I really like Crooklyn. That would probably be right outside. And also, probably Inside Man would be number six. And then Bamboozled would be five. Um, and then top four? Do the Right Thing is number one. I know that. Um, two, three, and four in some order would be he got game like you malcolm x like you and the five bloods i I know it's in my top four wow yeah i I would not put it that high right away just because i have fears of to me it feels like i know black clansman black clansman was a huge hit um made a ton of money and finally won him an oscar um so i feel like you know i was telling you this earlier this week i feel like that movie is going to be is going to become part of his major film trilogy with Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. Like, Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and Black Klansman makes sense to me as his big three, even though Black Klansman I was a pretty big fan of, but I wouldn't put it quite as high as those. Uh, but now with this movie, I, I don't know. This this seems like a... It seems like we, we just got back-to-back major, major Spike Lee works, which is awesome so late in his career. I agree. Yeah, they have a lot in common uh, in terms of, I think, being very pop entertainments that uh, kind of mix genre, like Black Klansman being a cop movie or 
having a lot of fun with the the buddy cop movie, especially him and Adam Driver in the main roles. They kind of have a lot of fun with that genre, especially mixed with black exploitation. They use a lot, they talk a you know expressly about referencing Shaft and other things. They they have posters and cutaways to that stuff and that genre of movies that was coming out at the time that story takes place and this black officer who's looking for heroes. And so, and that movie also is crisscrossing with Gone with the Wind, which was also in the news this week, and other things. And yeah, it's a it's a crazy movie that I think, same with Defy Bloods, where it's biting off so much I can understand somebody thinking it doesn't pull every single strand off perfectly, but it's still just a mass entertainment that's got so much to say about our current state, especially the last four minutes of Black Klansman, Jesus. Jesus, indeed. Anyway, on that note, we're, we've we've been going as long as we normally do. I'm <laughs> <laughs> time to say goodbye. Any, time to say goodbye. We got to wrap this up. Uh, any any quick recommendations or anything else you want to throw out there before we go this week? Uh, no, watch those Spike Lee movies. Yeah, um, I don't have. Yeah, I don't have anything. Um, I'm trying to. Th- did I let me let me look really quick? Did I watch any other? Um, Great movies. I didn't watch what? anything. I've uh, I read my ninth Isaac Asimov novel this year, the Foundation series and the Robot series. Um, so if you like sci-fi, read his books. Also, I'm big. I'm on a huge '90s music kick, so I've been listening to a lot of uh, P.J. Harvey, The Lemonheads, Stereo Lab. So if you if you're in the mood for those, I'm I'm finding I'm a uh, I had no idea. I'm a huge Stereo Lab fan. They're a band that I knew but didn't really explore deeply in any meaningful way, and I'm starting to uh, the last couple weeks, and uh, they've become one of my new favorite bands, Stereo Lab. Cool. Uh, I, I only vaguely know them, as, as we talked about last week. Um, my recommendations for this week would be... Oh, yeah, there's a 30 for 30 um, that just came out about Bruce Lee called Be Water. Oh, did you would... did you see that? Yes, I watched that. Um, it's available on the ESPN Plus app right now. And it's an hour and a half long, and it kind of just goes through the history of Bruce Lee. And I, it's all it's entirely audio and archival footage, so it's this kind of like endless collage of, of Bruce Lee footage and history and clips from his films. And it's not... It's a little bit weirder than a Talking Heads, just basic summary of Bruce Lee, but... Um, I mean, it's it's very good for beginners who are just trying to learn what was a big deal about Bruce Lee and what made him one of the iconic breakthrough Asian stars that really changed culture in the 70s. And as someone who's very excited for Criterion to release their Bruce Lee set later this year, for Bruce Lee to be like the kind of James Dean of Kung Fu, yeah, I'm very excited. And it was a nice primer that got me pretty pumped for that. So that's another, you know, we were just talking obviously for weeks about 30 for 30s, uh, The Last Dance with James or James, Michael Jordan. And so this was back in their kind of uh, regular style of 45 minutes to an hour and a half long stories about individual athletes. And this one in this case being Bruce Lee, who's an incredible fighter. Nice. It's, it's, it's a good, it's a good movie, a quick watch, especially if you're a fan of uh, movies. So yeah, I want to watch that. Yeah, it's good. I'd recommend it. Cool. Um, yeah. That, so I think that is the show for this week, right? Sure is. You good? Yep. All right. All right. All right. All right. Let me find my outro. There it is. All right. That's the show. <laughs> that's the show for this week. Um, uh, shoot us an email at how's that day pod at Gmail. We've just uh, 
I've been checking that regularly. So if you have any comments or any questions or any requests or anything you want us to cover or anything, I don't know, shoot us an email. It's a how's that day pod at gmail.com. And that's all one word. You can find us on social media. Tom is at big fat bond on Twitter and Bindi Tom Bindi on Instagram. I am at Phil Wiedenheft on Twitter and at Phil at P Wiedenheft on Instagram. And um, other shit's happened. We've got a ton to talk about. And uh, that's the show for this week. We'll, we'll keep talking about that shit next week. We will. Shit doesn't stop. Love you, everybody. Be safe out there. 223, that's short for us. <laughs> 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 All right. Bye, every- bye everyone. Bye.